Alright, welcome to the, uh... <laughs> the Kevin to Dan the podcast. Untitled Albums Project podcast project. Yeah, welcome to the Untitled Albums Podcast. Yes, um, this is a this is a podcast where we discuss albums that didn't really either get their due or are living in the shadow of albums that are more famous than it. I, I guess we could say that the albums that we cover here aren't really, you know, it doesn't mean that they didn't get critical acclaim. <laughs> True, especially um, right, right out of the gate here. Yeah. Yeah, especially with today's topic, um, Tom Waits' Mule Variations. Uh-huh. Maybe we should start with introducing ourselves, right? We're, we're just two dudes. We're just dudes. <laughs> we're just two dudes who, who <laughs> nobody knows. We're just dudes who met in college who, uh, like, not argue about music, music but uh, you, what, cordially discuss uh, disagreements sometimes? Is that fair? <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. So to start off with, uh, my name is Dan. I'm 31. So am I. Because I, I, like know, I like knowing how old my podcasters are, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's me know that I, if I can immediately dismiss them or not. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people just um, immediately dismiss us because they now know how old we are. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, They made it two minutes in. Yeah. All right. Go ahead, Kev. <laughs> who, are, who are you, Kev? I'm Kev. We're both big music heads in some ways. I think I think maybe you're even more of a, a, a you even have a wider palette than I do. But I think we're both type of people who once once we get into something, it's pretty it's pretty in depth, right? We're not we're not sort of we don't do a lot of dalliances and things. It kind of goes all the way. Kind of, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we both kind of span the gamut. I'd say I don't know if I'm more open minded than you on music. You know, I can be really prickly. Uh, when it comes to certain <laughs> certain music, or more uh-huh. more open, or, or not even open minded, or just more like uh, you might know more, like have a wider uh, variety. So I'm hoping that also this, in addition to kind of exploring whether or not these albums are underrated or appreciated or whatever word we want to use for that, I'm looking forward to like maybe finding other stuff too. You know that uh, I'm sure you you've come across some things that uh, definitely in the email you sent of some of the ideas. I was like, oh, okay, there's a lot of them I knew, but there are some that I'm pretty unfamiliar with. So, and I'm sure if I I've come up with a little bit of a list myself, so I'm sure when I send that to you, there's going to be some you're like, what the hell is this? But yeah, we're gonna uh, <laughs> yeah. we're gonna try to <laughs> looking forward to that. Explore the depths of some things that either we both like or 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 just one of us does. You know. <laughs> I think the only uh, yeah, and I think the only other piece of background that anybody listening to this needs to know is that we used to live together. Yes, true. Um, so we we're we're very familiar with exposing each other to music, and uh, we used to play in a band together as well. Yeah, this is true. Myself as a uh, as a as a guitarist, drummer, and you as a uh, a songer, a songer. General. Yeah, that's what you do. You're a songer. Songer, <laughs> songer. general, general ne'er do well. Yeah, that's me for sure. <laughs> You're sing, singer, vocalist, guitarist. Sure, um, let's go with that. <laughs> uh, and create and creative driving force uh, surrounding uh, surrounding the band. Show me Bulldog. Check them out. Yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> We're gonna get the bump from this podcast. <laughs> uh, well, that's enough about us then. Um, w- w- let's 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 jump into the man of the hour here, um, Mr. Tom Waits. Uh-huh. Um, I was gonna start with the album title, but I guess that makes zero sense. Um, so Tom Waits. Kev, how would you describe Tom Waits? Oh boy. Well, let me see. I mean, uh, you did give us a bit of an outline here, and are uh, are some of the notes you took, and I thought you you hit on some 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 good points there. Uh, if you just want to be like singer songwriter multi instrumentalist, that all of that stuff. For me, uh, Waits is fundamentally, I think, a singer songwriter, and obviously his sort of 
personality, both musically and like on screen and in pop culture, has transcended that into this kind of other image. And I think there's probably a lot of people who almost only know him maybe sometimes as like an actor and some of these things that he's been in. But uh, <laughs> primarily... Yeah, yeah. Any, any viewer of Seven Psychopaths would be like, oh, it's that it's guy. that guy. <laughs> or like if you saw the Coen Brothers movie where he's the, the prospector, you know? Yeah, I mean, to <laughs> me, uh, his career is so fascinating because... Uh, he really started out as a guy who I think viewed himself as a sort of uh, singer-songwriter in the in the kind of tradition of like the kind of I think like Brill Building, Tin Pan Alley kind of people who were like these you know this like these mm-hmm. kind of songwriting mills. I, I know there's a famous thing Waits once said that he's like, you know, my original goal in my career was to uh, write a song and then go, all right, go fly out the window and go make Daddy some money. And I think he really believed that early on in his career was that I don't think he <laughs> yeah. particularly planned on being uh, this the, the focal point of the attention in his music the way that he's become. I think there was a little bit more of the, you know, I'm going to write these songs and they're just going to be kind of like standards that people can take on. And of course, that has happened to him. He's had hits uh, or other people have had hits with his songs. But I think primarily he is almost now known more for his uh, you know, extra musical pursuits and his uh, kind of uh, persona and kind of the yeah. memification of it. But uh, I, I still primarily view him as just like a really talented uh, singer songwriter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think just to add a perfect description to I, I just to add a little more color. I would say, yeah, if you had to describe what he started out sounding like uh, from a purely albums perspective, I would say that his seventies album starts off in the 70s um mid to late 70s with a, a jazzy uh, loungy form of music that that kind of um, mashes together with beat poetry uh, heavily reminiscent of Kerouac and the albums that follow that uh, in the 70s and the early early 80s um, are very very um, bluesy-ish um, and kind of uh, wax and wave between being very sad piano ballads and bluesiness although I, I can't really speak too much uh, i've you know i've listened to blue valentine maybe once um heart attack and vine i think i've listened to once uh, i've listened to nighthawks at the diner countless times because uh, i know you guys always loved it and yeah uh, I, i'm i'm a big fan closing time is the original and that's uh, you know the specialty i would say would be, would be sad <laughs> yeah. so sadness uh drunken sadness uh it's chilling on the bar moving on from that point in his life he meets kathleen brennan in uh, 1980 and uh, marries Kathleen Brennan in 1980s and 1980. The two of them collaborate in probably the most special way possible where uh, his sound gets pushed into an incredibly experimental direction um, with the release of Swordfish Trombones in 1983 and then Rain Dogs two years later. Waits takes on a, a so much more eclectic and a very unique to him musical sound palette. There's a lot of uh, found sounds, a lot of strange instruments, a lot of marimbas. Uh, a lot of <laughs> the murmurs are my favorite. Yeah. A lot of clangy percussions, wide variations in his own vocals to kind of change the character that he is that he's singing through. That's that's definitely a new uh, thing that comes along. I think in these albums. Yeah. Uh, but but he doesn't abandon his his leanings, uh, his lyrical leanings. Uh, he still very much identifies with the hobos and the drunks and the low culture freaks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and he he takes a lot of more influence from. From stranger folks such as uh, Captain Beefheart, uh, Captain Beefheart, excuse me, 
and uh, Bertolt Brecht and uh, Kurt Weill, among others. Songs such as uh, Jackie Full of Bourbon, Tango Till They're Sore, Clap Hands, and uh, one of my personal favorites, uh, Shore Leave, really exemplify this, this change in weights of sound. for me because I, I can't you know go this whole podcast without bringing it up like my tom waits is like my dad's favorite musician i think probably if he mm-hmm. like o- of all time and and what's funny about that is that he would have you know my dad would have come around in the t- in the time of the 70s so all of those the those records from like closing time you mentioned like closing time heart of saturday night uh nighthawks like up through around like foreign affairs and stuff was kind of his wheelhouse small change was mm-hmm. big with him and so it's funny how it works just on my own personal level because that was like the stuff that i was associated with like the classic weights sound and i think he he really jumped off ship with swordfish trombones i think like just uh which is kind of surprising oh to me in retrospect but uh i also i can't c- imagine hearing that album like in the time yeah. like wait what is he doing now <laughs> what is this and there's like no symbols and there's marimbas everywhere and it's like what's going on and i think uh i think it kind of mm-hmm. threw him but he definitely like stayed stayed around you know and and uh was still buying stuff and then i think at the end of uh, yeah and like uh, as time kind of went forward like uh he kind of came back around to all the kind of weirdness of weights but i think initially again i think his perception of him was much more of the sort of straightforward like 70s singer songwritery stuff although yeah i mean we can also we, we haven't explicitly mentioned the whole fact that his voice is um unique <laughs> is that the right <laughs> word to say yeah uh it's uh, my favorite adjective for weights voice is gravelly gravelly yeah whiskey whiskey soaked even though i think he quit drinking a long long time ago but uh he did uh, one of the reasons i'm assuming that he was like a little bit dubious about the idea of being like a front man slash singer himself i could imagine that he might have been at least at first somewhat self-conscious about that but obviously like you say that becomes like such a uh that becomes in a lot of ways like the hallmark of his musical career although perhaps maybe Maybe it's a little bit oversold at times. I I feel, but uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I it's funny how things play off because obviously now I love like those '80s albums, or at least I, I you know Swordfish, Trombones, and Rain Dogs for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, to now, like you, I grow older and go, oh, this is actually the music that most people consider to be like his most classic era. But I had to kind of come to it on my own terms, you know, many years later. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, yeah, it's it's remarkable uh, can you speak at all to, to bone machine and uh what comes after i think frank's wild years also because these are albums that i've had you know one and a half exposures to with the exception of fight club which of course uh right yeah features uh features was it going, going out, west? out west yeah um, great scene yeah uh can i speak to it it's funny i mean i have a weird relationship to it because i'm particularly fond of the orphans collection which is like the b-sides collection that came out i think like in the mid 2000s and i think that's probably like one of the first ones that came out where i was like aware of him and was interested in it you know at the time of its release 
so that there's a huge chunk there between like what you're saying between sort of the uh like swordfish trombones rain dogs thing and then like where we get up to mule variations and then beyond that uh in in preparing mm-hmm. for this podcast i i definitely was listening to more uh, bone machine i think i listened to i listened to alice and blood money and it, it, that's either the first or second time i've ever heard those records i honestly couldn't tell you mm-hmm. so i'm not de- yet yeah, i'm definitely my interest definitely uh at some point tail off but it was funny kind of going back to them because they actually those records particularly the bone machine uh album which I hadn't heard in a long time, uh, was actually a lot closer to the sounds that you're getting on uh, Mule Variations than I had remembered. And then when I listened to stuff after Mule Variations, like um, Alice and Blood Money, uh, it, it, mm-hmm. it, it did make me realize that the perception of Mule Variations as some kind of peak in his career, I think might be accurate in the sense of hearing Bone Machine, to me, sounded like a logical kind of lead up to the sounds on Mule Variations. And then when I hear things afterwards, they sound like he kind of is almost hyper aware of the specific sounds that he made that are the most successful. And Orphans is different because that's coming from all different parts of his career, which I think is one of the reasons I I like it a lot still is that it's kind of covering Mm -hmm. all this ground, like literally in time. So this album, I mean, one of the threads in this uh, podcast, I feel like we have to bring up is that if the podcast is going to be focused on albums that we feel like are underappreciated, it's interesting to to uh, to kind of ponder whether or not that that's true with mule variations. And you were the one who kind of uh, brought this one up. Yeah. So I was wondering, like, what what do you think about this album is potentially being like overlooked? Um, I I don't quite think about it in the terms of it being overlooked so much as it being retrospecting on Waits's career. You get three main points. I would say you you get the closing time era. The sad, jazzy, yeah. piano-y, uh, beat poetry guy. You get rain dogs and swordfish trombones, which people consider the pinnacle, which I think is correct. Um, and then you get mule variations as a as a you know kind of like an inflection point. Um, and I think of the three of them, or at least in the, the the crowds that I've surfed in, mule variations is the third one mentioned or it's the last one you get to among those three right right uh, it it may not be despite the fact that the mule variations is it it's a surprisingly um accessible <laughs> weights album yeah uh it's it's not necessarily the first one you would go to if someone told you hey go listen to tom waits and uh, uh you know if we're talking underratedness you know there's plenty of other underrated Wade's albums you know the man's got a large discography yeah but uh, that's the main uh angle at which i'm coming from this uh coming from at this gotcha yeah because th- that's an interesting thing when you say that inflection point i really think that that's true and and this is an album that going into it i guess we already kind of gave our like background into like our listening to tom waits but i i don't know how i don't know what your relationship was to this album going into like doing this podcast but for me, it was always an album that I had just like I had always filed it away in my mind. It's like, oh yeah, that's a great album. Mule Variations, great album, and I would kind of think of like a handful of the songs. But when I went back to it, not only are there a bunch of ones that I barely even remembered, or just or if I like you know heard a minute of them, would sort of recall them. But you know, it wasn't uh, for tops in my mind. Like, not only is that 
true, but also it really did to me lock in in my mind that I feel like perhaps obviously it's hard to get into the mind of uh, Tom Waits <laughs> in any capacity, but it does feel like Mule Variations might be this period of his career where he was beginning to understand his specific strengths and how in terms of writing songwriting, like for example, I while I was listening to this album, I, I had the uh, the structure of the Orphans B-Sides collection in my head was this, um, it's a three-disc collection of one of them. It's yeah. split into Brawlers, Ballers, and Bastards. And <laughs> if you listen to this uh, album, it's pretty clear that that's already kind of something that's that's in his mind that there's like these right, different right. modes. There's, ton, there's tons of brawlers on here. There's tons of bastards on yeah. here. And, ball, <laughs> right. and ballers, yeah. you know, and, and, and ball, especially ballers. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So that was something that really stuck out to me. And when we go track by track here, we'll, we'll definitely be able to, p- to pick those out because that was the first time I had really considered that mule variations was like, like you said, like potentially an inflection point. I guess I had in my mind kind of filed it away as just like, Oh yes, that's, like a you know that's like an a minus tom waits record or something you know uh mm-hmm. <laughs> so i uh yeah, yeah i think and i was underappreciating it myself i don't know i mean yeah critically it was pretty well acclaimed for a for a waits album and uh and i think commercially i don't think it did so hot initially but i wonder now if it's if it's kind of rallied i'm not sure from what i saw it, it had moderate commercial success at the time it probably yeah. um you know, it probably never experienced a, a better time than when it was released. Personally speaking, I mean, you, you asked about my my exposure to this album, you know, going back. And it was, yeah, I, I kind of got into weights all at once, I believe. Uh, I can't remember when I I finally came around to appreciating um, Swordfish Trombones and Rain Dogs because it was later than Heart of Saturday Night and uh, Nighthawks. But because um, just because of how different it is, it you know you have to attune to that stuff if you don't really uh, dig it on your first uh, listen. But um, Mule Variations was the one where I I kind of listened to it last uh, among his big albums and thought, oh man, this is actually really good. It, it it blindsided me. I didn't expect a man. Waits was fifty years old when he recorded this. I didn't expect a man who was fifty, um, you know, who started his career in the 70s right. to come out with an album in 1999 that's this good. I, I don't know where I would have put it in my, you know, my, my Wade's canon at the time. You know, listening to it now, and I don't want bury the leaf, but, like, it's probably my number two at this point, like, after having assessed it in this way. Wow, interesting. Uh, because, uh, like, unlike you, I have no um, family connections to Wade's. I didn't know the guy existed before I started digging in on Rate Your Music. Right, right, right. Back in like 2006, you know, um, <laughs> uh, 2008 actually. Waste blindsided me, and and mule variations blindsided me in the Waste catalog. So just to to move us forward here, so we uh, can finally get to our track by track. Just a couple more details, really, about the album. It was recorded um, in 1998. Uh, at Prairie Sun Studios, which is north of San Francisco. We should never forget that no matter what way it sounds like, he's from California. He's from San Diego, which is like crazy to <laughs> think about, but it is true. He's a California man to the bitter end, which is amazing to think about. Yeah. Bone Machine was also recorded here, um, and it laid a lot of the sonic groundwork that this works off of, despite them being, what was it, seven years apart? Six or seven years about. apart? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, and uh, there's a there's a great picture of the uh, room that this was recorded in. Yeah, the weights uh, room. That was that yeah. <laughs> the weights room that was a storage room that they cleared out because weights liked the atmosphere of the room apparently. Yeah. Um, 
There's like weird maps on the wall and stuff. It does seem like a room I know, he would right? record in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very weird. And you see that picture of the bass drum. Yeah. And the um, the organ, the old style organ that's sitting right next to it. And like and the stand up bass. You're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. This this couldn't be anything else but the Waits room. Sonically, it uh, it marks a return to Waits' blues roots more so than ever. I, that is definitely something I picked up on when preparing for this podcast. I was like, oh, this is like really deep into blues like more than he'd ever been but and he's he's like he's like name calling and not name calling he's like name checking like blues guys that i could never have heard of in my life you know and there's so many of them already <laughs> my my favorite being burnt face jake burnt face which jake we'll, you wrote about that in the thing which, i didn't know that yeah <laughs> which which we'll go into because uh, but um and you know even though he he dug deep on the blues roots he he never uh, betrayed his 80s weirdness um, he he apparently described this material as uh, surreal. Yeah. Uh, portmanteau, portmanteau of surreal, merle. I love that. That's <laughs> pretty great. <laughs> and um, and this uh, uh, going in line with what you were saying earlier, Kev. Uh, this received a Grammy for best for best contemporary folk album. Yeah, and he was nominated for another Grammy for Hold On too. So, yep. Yeah, Hold On got it. Yep, yep, it got a got a nom. And so uh, and this is 1999. Uh, you know. I was I was a wee child. Uh, I would never have known uh, any of these things were happening <laughs> I know, at the time. The album title apparently gets its name because they had done the uh, the pseudo title title track "Get Behind the Mule" uh, a ton of times in a bunch of different forms, to which they they refer to the bunch as mule variations uh, in reference to the Goldberg variations by Bach, and um, they thought it was funny, and this, and so it stuck. Yeah, I was gonna say on that too. I thought it was. I was kind of thought it was funny because a mule is like a you know a combination of a horse and a donkey. So it's like, what would be mm-hmm. the like other variations? Was it like a horse and a pig or something? You know, <laughs> mule variations. <laughs> I don't know. That maybe that's my own weird, weird image. But I feel like that would be something that that yeah exactly. I feel like that would be something like that that weights would find funny too but yeah probably the gold sure. thing is, is most of it <laughs> do you have any impressions on the album cover i i didn't really i hadn't really thought about it that much uh but yeah it is it is pretty nice i dug out my uh cd my my dad's uh, old cd copy of it and uh yeah it's uh it's it's pretty provocative it's it's got a nice it's got a nice look to it it's funny to co- contrast it with the cover of bone machine which is like a oh ty- like a cover that's designed to like scare the wits out of you and i think when i was a kid that worked pretty well on me uh Whereas, yeah, Mule Variations feels a little bit more friendly, but still kind of, still kind of eerie, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, I did. I never really. I thought it was very standard looking when I first saw it, but when I was looking back at it now, uh, it's it's really perfect. Of uh, you know, it matches the the sonic quality of the album really well. It's sepia toned. It's faded. Uh, the borders. It's it's wide open in a field, but it's also very claustrophobic because the uh, there's a, um, a a black halo around the entire uh, album border. It's tarnished and grimy, which is weights to the very core. Yeah. Um, and he's looking back at you. He's looking back and down at you, like, hey, uh, you want you want to you <laughs> follow me, anyways? Yeah, the mule. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Get behind. I'm the mule. Get behind me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's great. All right. So without further ado, we're half hour in. We might as well uh, <laughs> do it. Let's let's jump into the track by track. The best part. We'll introduce this first track, which is Big in Japan. Japan. 
impressions. <laughs> I love this track. I love it so much as an opener. That crazy sound that I guess is him like yelling at things and like banging on furniture and stuff in Mexico is like a very good way to to start the to start the album. It's like a great track to highlight that like this is actually like relatively straightforward for a Tom Waits song in some ways, like in terms of lyrically, it's almost uh, nursery rhyme-ish, but in a way that only he could yeah. pull off. And I, I just, yeah, I, I, I've always just been a, a huge, a huge fan of this, of this particular song. <laughs> it's a real banger of, a, of, a, of an intro on this album. <laughs> um uh yeah i i also love the the whacking what i found out are whacking furniture sounds um at the beginning uh really lay the the, the groundwork there uh, i love those sharp uh tom drums uh that are that remind me of tool and uh, uh danny carey's like just that long that long snare drum like what that get out of it there you go we only made it um, a half hour in before there was a tool reference so yeah i know right that was, that was <laughs> it's kind of on the nose but that's <laughs> <laughs> what i thought of you know um apparently les claypool and larry lalonde from primus are on this track yeah. you can barely tell primus is um, yeah I, primus is on the track but it's hard to like you yeah i'm glad you wrote that because i didn't know that until we did this pod i uh, i've seen the clip of like prime i think primus and gogo bordello played this track live at some point but i just assumed cool. it was like you know a song they both liked i had no idea that like les had actually worked on the album so Man, that's pretty cool i would love to I would love to hear that Eastern European man uh, <laughs> sing this song. <laughs> Holy crap! I know that uh, Waits and, and Claypool are um, are peers and uh, friends. I don't know if it's so so far to say to call them friends. I know I've heard that they go to flea markets together or something. Um, yeah, I could see that. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I could see that they uh, they sh- they share an aesthetic of sorts. <laughs> uh, I think uh, I mean Primus uh, kind of. Uh, for some reason, I guess because they were still relevant at the time, uh, really permeate this album spiritually in a strange kind of way. Uh, they were and Bone Machine, for that matter. Um, yeah. But uh, I don't know. I don't have anything else to add to that other than the fact that I like it. You know, I like that when uh, when a band as uh, uh, as contemporary as Primus would have been back then uh, are have their mark on this album, which which I previously didn't know. You know, that's that's really cool. Yeah, that is really cool, and it's nice. It's uh. It's funny to think about. I don't really know what Tom Waits's like music consumption would be like, you know, around this time. It's kind of hard to imagine him exist like being interested in <laughs> bumping into Jerry's race car driver. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then, you know, uh, I, I like you said, I can the, the aesthetics between the two match enough that I could see him being being interested in a collaboration. Though it still very much seems like a Tom Waits song for sure. Mm-hmm. A salient lyric that that popped out at me is a. Uh... I got the powder, but not the gun. I got the dog, but not the bun. <laughs> and I was listening to it thinking, like, did he, like, miss a lyric? Like, when he said not the bun, I was like, I I, I almost felt like he meant to say something else. But I, then I realized it's a hot dog uh, later on. I was like, oh, yeah, of course it's not. Does, um, <laughs> does he, my question is, does he have the bread or not? Because he says he has the bread, but not the butter. But then later he says he has the jam, but not the bread. So I'm confused about <laughs> whether or not he has the bread. So the only thing I know for sure is that he's big in Japan. That's really all. <laughs> and he's I know got for the sure. whole damnation on their knees. That's all we really need to know. <laughs> um, 
I think one thing that people should know about me uh, as a music listener is that I, I do not listen to lyrics very closely uh, much at all um, unless they're very forward in the song. I'm usually listening to the, uh, to the instrumentation first and um, looking up the lyrics to these songs as I'm listening to them. It was a real treat, uh, especially for, for songs like big in Japan. <laughs> um, you know, I don't care to analyze them uh, most of the time uh, unless the, the, the meaning is explicitly given to me, but uh, Big in Japan is just a, just a lyrical blast. It's great. Yeah, ditto for me with the with the lyric thing. So this is going to be interesting as we go through this because we go through different albums and stuff. Because that that I I yeah I was paying extra close attention to a lot of the lyrics in a way where for you know I would probably if I was just listening to this just kind of be like just let it kind of roll over me. But then yeah, like reading a little bit about the background of some of the songs and then just knowing we were going to talk about them, I I felt more compelled to uh to really dial it up plus like i guess waits is probably one of the artists i would listen to lyrics more intently than than a lot but yeah definitely for this i was like it was pretty fun to go through <laughs> right sometimes it pays off and sometimes it's like trying to analyze a lynch movie and you're just like oh that was that was fruitless yeah i don't know why i tried to do that we did, yeah. <laughs> nobody knows including <laughs> them you know yeah exactly uh which i i would not doubt is is definitely a thing with weights some i wouldn't doubt that he's just he might be sometimes the kind of guy who just writes a song and it's like i don't know what it means <laughs> right right why don't we go to the next track uh this is uh, number two low side of the road the dice is laughing at the man to say off the bat it's a surprising second song uh-huh. um, i don't know if i were sequencing this i probably would have put hold on as as number two um and put low side as number three but it's a it's a it's maybe it's meant to establish atmosphere because uh, it's very it's a very very atmospheric song and uh, you get this uh you know that filter behind his voice uh, that makes him sound a little bit far away or maybe he's speaking through a megaphone like he tends to like to do Low Side of the Road for me is, is is an okay song, but it feels underwhelming to me as a number two. Yeah, I I saw that uh, you wrote the note about Hold On here. That That's also interesting. I mean, yeah, it feels like it could have it probably come later. I guess it's... I don't mind it as much, I guess, between these two because I there's a pretty big difference between Big in Japan and Hold On. So I could kind of see this just sort of... They, they just feel like mm-hmm. this is kind of filling that gap in a way. But... If I'm being honest, like when I was going through this album, to me, it, there's some albums where there's like a flow where you just put it on and then each track, you know, the end of one track really almost like feels like the intro mm-hmm. to the next one. That's not really the way I feel about this album. Like I said, with the Ballers, Brawlers and Bastards thing, it's almost like the songs are almost so different in tone that I, I think it actually benefits from the sort of juxtaposition between them. Like if he had positioned it as like all you know, kind of fast rockers if not, that's mm-hmm. not the right term for him necessarily, but you know, the kind of up, up tempo, more, you know, less introspective or less ballady ones. And then kind of had the record transition into more of that stuff. I almost wonder if that wouldn't have worked as well, even though it would technically quote unquote, like have flowed better. I just feel like it was, you know, I, I don't think, uh, this is obviously we're in the CD era here. I don't think that they were like so concerned with the whole, uh, it doesn't feel like the, this album is one that I, with the song placements, I don't feel as strongly about as some other 
some other ones we might hit in the future. But yeah, they definitely could have yeah. put this later, and they could have put like something else in this in this slot, even if it was like get behind the mule or something. But yeah, I I I, I, I hear what you're saying, and yeah, I'll go overall. Yeah, this is a good, this is a good song. I like it. It's kind of got that broken down. You know, Tom Waits never plays music that's actually like country or bluegrass but it had there's music that has this like broken down banjo-y kind of sad like feeling mm-hmm. to it that i think uh, uh that that i really like uh but yeah this is just like this is a pretty good song but it's definitely not one that's uh up there for me yeah and, and just to add to what you were saying about the sequencing i think uh you're you're spot on 100 like I don't think sequencing was the biggest. I, I'm not to say that they don't put thought into it, but uh, it may not have been the biggest concern for them. There are so many strange juxtapositions in tracks on this album. Uh, one in particular, far more. But yes, yeah, f- yeah, yeah, far more strange than, than this one. Um, and we'll definitely get to that. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, low side of the road is a um, not a filler track, of course, but uh, a good uh, padding track between uh, Big in Japan and Hold On. And I think the only piece of background to provide on this song is that it, um, I don't know, uh, Waits, with all of his cryptic sayings and um, strange interviews and such, uh, said something about uh, this this being about Lead Belly uh, going to jail over a skirmish that involved a knife and saying he was rolling over to the low side of the road. Right. Um, so something some um, some expression he had kind of come across. I mean the album the song itself seems like the kind of blues trope of like the other side of the tracks like you know there's horses whipping men, you know, it's like this very like dystopian yeah. um you know, I'm thinking of like these blues songs where it's like if you go down to deep ellum, you know, your your wife's going to yeah. leave you and you're going to lose all your money. It's kind of like that sort of you know, yes. like that kind yeah. of vibe. Yeah, it had a very beaten down, almost like an on the lamb kind of a feel. Uh-huh. to it yeah uh, which of course will uh, again will kind of be a little bit of a theme here on this album cool you want to uh you want to move on next to uh the next track here sure this is uh this is track three and this is hold on she wouldn't took that california trip well the moon was golden hair like wind said don't look back just come on jim Got to hold on, hold on. You gotta hold on, take my hand, standing right here. You gotta hold on. Hold on is the. Uh, so, I mean, we talked about this guy Grammy nod and uh, yeah. and uh, nominate this song in particular getting a Grammy nomination. Uh, this being the only single on the album, uh, I shudder to think what radio station would have played. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> would have played this growing up in the '90s and the 2000s. I I could never tell. I could not tell you a radio station that played Hold On. Um, I never heard it anywhere else other than on this album. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> it's hard to tell. Yeah, what what would the singles for Waits albums are they like just for college radio stations or something? Like wh- who would have been <laughs> who would have been spinning this at the time? You know, best male rock vocal performance is like not a category that I think a lot of people would associate with Tom Waits. Uh, if you just had to, <laughs> did you, uh, did you want to do overall thoughts about the song? Sure. Um, I, I definitely think it's a good song. It's, um, I don't think there's a lot to read into lyrics wise, which is pretty cool. Right. Um, 
it's an, it's an optimistic track, which you don't, I, you know, maybe you can get like one good optimistic track out of Waits on Waits and Brennan on an album. The optimistic tracks are always the ones that I think other people go for. Typically, <laughs> uh, it it reminded me of Springsteen doing Downtown Train for some reason. Or Rod Stewart, um, you mean Rod Stewart? Oh, I'm sorry, that's right. Rod Stewart did Downtown Springsteen Train. Did, Springsteen did um, Jersey Girl. So, uh, Jersey Girl. That's I mean, right. which um, does sound like a song that waits actually like wrote for him although i don't even think that was true but i it just sort of sounds like it <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah um i love the sparse in- instrumentation on this track um i love that that very very light what i think is a bass drum uh, that's in the back of this yeah just the, the the very light strums of the guitar um it's very very stripped down uh, considering how many different strange sounds there are in this album it's this one's not trying to be too much and i can respect that but otherwise, I just think it's very straightforward. Yeah, I linked. Uh, I sent you a link to this uh, a Billboard article that kind of ran like a track by track thing at the twentieth anniversary of this, and it mentioned that the lyrics to "Hold On" there was some inciting incident involving like him and his daughter looking at somebody in like a windstorm or something, and uh, the kid said something. Oh, fascinating! I don't even really remember, but apparently, like you know, I think it's the same thing. Like we said, like low side of the road. Like he probably read that, and then by the time you get to what the song actually is, it's not about that at all. It seems like you're saying it's pretty much, it seems like a kind of a straightforward love song about his wife. If I had to guess, I mentioned uh, at the top of the podcast, a little bit about the perception of weights and whether or not we want to say this album or era of him is like overlooked or underappreciated in some ways. This is the kind of track that I think is, is interesting because he has the capability to write songs like this. And yet this is not something that he is like, I think, in the public, you know, sphere uh, totally. You know, if you think about like the, oh, you know, that site, the hard times that does like those <laughs> fake news stories. And it'll be like, you know, the, the yes. definitive list of Tom Waits' seven horror cruxes or <laughs> like <laughs> like he has to play this role. And those things, I like, I, I, it makes me laugh, but, you know, one of them described him as the son of a feral dog and a haunted phonograph. Like, you know, that's pretty funny. But, uh, <laughs> but like, the fact that he also is, like, completely able to write these, like, beautiful, tender love ballads but not have that become a huge focal point of his career is pretty fascinating to me. Like, I think there's a lot of artists out there who would just kill for the ability to pull off something this heartfelt immediately after two things that are a lot uh, weirder <laughs> and a lot, yeah, more, you know, yeah. and uh, the fact that that's just something that he can do, but also seems like uh, <laughs> not disinterested uh, I, I in, just... but yeah, just like, like he's, you know, it's like, oh yes, this is also something that I can do, but it's not everything that I can do. You know what I mean? Y- yeah. Like there are artists out there who are trying to make their entire careers off of songs like this. Right. And he's just like, yeah, I do this in my spare time, but it's not my, it's not my main thing. Yeah. He's like, yeah, hey, <laughs> I wrote like... this this morning. What do you think, Kathleen? And she's like, yeah, I think that's pretty good. We should probably put that on the album. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, other than that, like musically, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's great. I mean, this is the stuff that I really, I, that this is like the side of him that I think I maybe. Uh, I think maybe I like the most in some ways is this, is his kind of tenderness, but I also like all the other weird stuff too. So it's wonderful. All right, go ahead and you can introduce the next one. All right, it's, it's, uh... this is track four. This is the kind of pseudo title track, and it is "Get Behind the Mule." Get behind the mule. <laughs> <laughs> we could just instead of doing needle drops, we can just sing. I'm out of the dam, smoke Jimmy the Harper with a hard little pistol and a lariat. She's 
so solid um it's a real vibe i have to say like <laughs> even though it's repetitive as hell like yeah it ties the whole album together like this is the mule song like it plods along the lyrics are all over the place i i wrote that they sound like, they sound like they're almost improvised yeah um with the lariat like it's like what's he saying what's going on yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's so, and there's so many of them it's a long song uh on the album comparatively uh but uh you know the, i think the best part about weights is that they they don't have to make sense uh the lyrics in the song itself don't really have to make sense um even though the the story i guess behind the song is that uh, let me do it in weights as well robert johnson's father said that uh <laughs> His problem when he wouldn't he wouldn't get behind the mule in the morning and plow. Uh, it's a bad ways impression, <laughs> but uh, you know uh, these lyrics are completely up to interpretation, and I'm sure even if you're weights, they're up to interpretation. Uh, it's it's aesthetics to the very very end, and I love that. And, and then uh, I also just love um, Mark Ribot, uh, frequent weights collaborator, uh-huh. uh, brings that. I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, you're more of a guitarist than me. That very twangy uh, guitar that's very signature to him. Yeah. Um, on this album, and and I've heard Mark Ribot uh, on Waits albums like Rain Dogs, but I've also heard him off of Waits albums uh, doing like um, I want to say like not Bossa Nova, but uh, but like Cuban. Yeah, he um, has that like, like Los Cuban Cubanos. jazz. Yeah, album or whatever. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah, I had a coworker turn me on to that stuff, and um, Mark Ribot is, is wonderful. He's, he he always adds the perfect amount of attitude to any Wait song that needs it. It's it's badass. I love it. Yeah, they seem like really great, like musical musical kindred spirits. That that kind of like when you hear Mike R- Mark Ribot play, it's like very clearly him. <laughs> you know, there's almost it's like his like Wait's mm-hmm. singing voice. It's like is that Tom Wait? Like you would never ask that. Like you can kind of tell. I think Waits has a thing for people who have like distinct sounds, you know. He doesn't have a lot of like not to say he doesn't have subtlety, but like he definitely likes things that kinda come out and bite you, you know. And uh Rebo's mm-hmm. definitely a guitar player I think who who adds to that and yeah, like you said, he's he's just a great musician in his own right. Uh yeah, Get Behind the Mule's pretty great. I mean it's one of the ones that I associated with the album going in and then it was funny listening to it over and over again how I liked it, but because there were so I mean, I still really like it, but because there were so many I hadn't really heard in a while, I started to kind of listen to those ones more just because I, I knew this song really well. I was surprised on some of the, I looked up some of like the streaming numbers slash I was just sort of like Googling things about like Tom Waits. And for some reason, I just thought that this was like one of those songs that was like, you know, if you're the kind of person who only knew five Tom Waits songs, this was one of them. But like you were saying about maybe this era being a little bit seen as kind of the Lost second or third, <laughs> third banana. What was that? <laughs> I was going to say lost the time, but I like third banana better. <laughs> third, th- third banana, fourth banana. That, you know, a, a lot of the streaming stuff and like when you Google like f- his famous songs, it's like a lot of them are the earlier era, like ballads from the earlier eras, like the closing, like some of the slower closing time tracks and stuff. And yeah, I assumed that yeah. this was just, I, I, for some reason also, again, I think based on the persona, that's kind of come around him. I always thought that this was sort of one that kind of fit that 
mold and that this would be one people kind of knew him for but uh maybe it is sort of slipping in that sense and i don't know i always think of the vh1 storytellers thing he did around this time i was just gonna, I was just gonna <laughs> say that yeah, yeah like you'd think just because of the existence of the storytellers that like it might have gotten a lot more recognition gee my um, wife said i didn't marry a man i married a mule and i said honey you gotta get behind the mule <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, I I think it's, to me, it seems like, I don't know, I feel like it is one of the iconic Wait songs, so uh, I, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I, I, I'm going to put this up, <laughs> I'm putting this in my own personal top top mm-hmm. uh, Wait songs. It's it's really great, and yeah, it's uh, th- like a lot of songs on this album, there's so many ways that if you were to, if other lyricists had come up with these, I think they would have made more straightforward, like sounding musical songs. Like there's so many lyrics that could have just been kind of put into like a really boring, like blues songs, but somehow Waits always finds this way, not just with his voice, but instrumentally to like make things sound more provocative, which I think this, this is a good example of that, you know? Yeah. Especially considering now that I'm realizing this as I'm sitting here, like this is like a one, two quarter. Yeah. Right. Like there's, this is like, and it's not the only like one like one that. Half on chords. Album. There's, 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 there's several like that where there's really not a lot of harmony, or you know, there's not a lot of harmonic tension going on. There's, you know, there's not a million chords, or mm-hmm. like, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's, but yeah, it's all how it, it's all like the attitude and how it's produced that just like makes these things yeah, come through, yeah. you know. Very Lou Reed forever. However much of a hater he was, like I hope he took a, he took note. Like, oh yeah, that's. That's that's a good one. <laughs> that's a that's a good two quarter. That's good, yeah. All right, let's let's bring the mood way down. Let's bring it way down. <laughs> let's bring it way down and and bring it down to uh, the house where nobody lives. Seeds had grown up just as high as the door. There were birds in the chimney and an old chest of drawers. Looks like no one ever come back to the house where nobody lives. <laughs> this is the first of uh, on the album of what I call unofficially the, the slow, sad, heavy songs. Yep, this is this is baller <laughs> like, number one, I think. We're like the yeah, anymore. ballers. I get. I think ballers is probably the term I should stick to since it, he coined it. You know, yeah. like this is baller num- big baller number one right here. Um, feels very old school um, for weights. It feels like it could have been on on any of his old albums. Uh, frankly, to me, uh, despite the the new instrumentation, um, almost to the point of it being melodramatic. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, did did you catch that the mel the melodrama in this? I did. Yeah, it, it's, the, we uh, we talking about like interpretations of his lyrics and different things like this. I think this song is like exactly literally true. Like I think there actually literally was a house on his block where nobody lived, and it bothered. Oh yeah, of course. And it bothered the hell out of him. And something about this song, wh- whether or not like this is even, I don't even think like this is the best ballad on this album or anything like that, but. One thing that's funny is like, I just, again, I find it like his whole public persona and the way uh, we we kind of like think about Tom Waits and culture. And if you bring up Tom Waits, just I don't think a lot of people associate him with the kind of guy who would just like look at an abandoned house and like be like, 
oh man what happened like did somebody cheat on somebody did what happened like this something <laughs> the fact that this bothered him to me almost like really I, I find it very like human and very charming that he he's just the kind of guy who I don't know because I have these similar thoughts where you just look at something and you're like what happened here there has to be some yeah. sad story and I don't know what it is and it's so I'll just make one up. Yeah. Like Yeah. Exactly. And he or he's just like, yeah, once it held laughter, once it had, it's like that that might not be true. It might have been, you know, but like he has it's like you almost have to believe that. And um this is like there's there's one this is one and then we're gonna circle back to one at, towards the end of the album where his concerns over certain things are both out of character and re- like really uh charming to me. Uh but yeah, it's a little mm-hmm. it's a little mel- it's a little croonery, melodramatic uh you know but i can somehow i guess even just between i guess the voice and then just something about tom waits as a person it makes it it makes a song like this more much more palatable to me than if it was done by like i don't know like a crooner you know <laughs> like michael yeah. buble or something <laughs> you know what oh, i mean oh god jeez <laughs> Um, but even though mentioning that man ever again, even, (laughs) even, yeah, that's, that's, I literally, I couldn't, that was the only person I could come up, come up with. Um, (laughs) but, uh, you know, it's like, there's, there's, but I think you would agree, like, this is not that far removed from that, from, from a lot of like very slow, sad, melodramatic piano music, just something, something about weights can kind of, and the way, and the weights, the way it sounds as well can kind of separate him, I think a little bit. It's also genuinely aesthetically weights. Uh, there's yeah. something about an abandoned house that is yeah. like, you know, it's rural. <laughs> right. I grew up in a rural area. Like you see abandoned barns and houses like everywhere and just like, yeah, it's like what happened here? Like And again, what, Waits is from story? Waits is from San Diego. Like I, I, like I, know. I don't think he ever like <laughs> uh, uh I believe this is true. Like a really random fact is that his family went to the same church that like Ronald Reagan went to, which is just an insane like image to think about. That's insane. Um, Yeah. But so I don't even know, like I think some people who kind of uh, criticize Waits, criticize him for this sort of um, projecting this kind of image of a, of a person that he, or like a, you know, person that he never really was or like that, being in places yeah he that he's really co-opted was. the midwest right yeah like um and there, there might be some truth to that but i also feel like somehow he, uh, to me he still has this integrity of really like um emotionally understanding this stuff i don't know like you, you get this sense that he's uh no matter <laughs> like he could be sitting on a beach in San Diego and he would be wanting to be in an abandoned house in Wisconsin. You know, I don't know. Some part of me just <laughs> yeah. feels that way about him, even if it is like a projection based on the music. Right, right. Yeah, he he he's waits to the bitter end. And, you know, he's always been kind of a hobo, you know. Like, yeah. Let's not forget that despite being from the, the, the city. Yeah, he's he lived in his car. There's no doubt. He lived in the Tropicana Hotel, which is like this infamous uh, hotel. Uh, if you read stories about him in that time, it's really hilarious. He took a sledgehammer to a wall so that he like ins- he permanently like installed a piano <laughs> into his hotel <laughs> oh room. God. And the Tropicana is like one of those where it was like you know it was a hotel, but people never left, so you just kept paying money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's like uh, so yeah, he definitely was like you know living. He definitely had some kind of like. Uh, you know, derelict periods of his, of his life, but it was never anything that I think was, uh, 
uh, he was never actually like really riding the rails in a boxcar, but you know, he wasn't, like I say, right. I feel like he could understand that somehow. Um, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. House Where Nobody Lives, wonderful song. Yeah, good song. Um, reminds me uh, a lot of, uh, for the benefit of Mr. Kite, because it's one of those, like, I saw something, I'm going to write a song about it. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, even if I have to make up the story of what it's about, um, uh, I wrote, it's, it's like painting a building in a town that you live in. You know, it's just like, I right. want to record, you know, this piece of, uh, this piece of my surroundings, uh, for the benefit of my own aesthetics or, or whatever. But no, I, I like the, the, the discussion about hobos, um, uh, especially with weights. Uh, and let's move Speak, on to cold water because it's, it's very much on, yeah, it's very much on that thread. So this is, this is cold water. great because i like the concept that he's writing about a crazy drunk hobo but it seems like this guy's life is uh he's pretty comfortable with it it seems like he doesn't really seem to yeah he doesn't really seem to mind uh that seems pretty content he's pretty content i like this song uh and it's very it's definitely probably the most straightforward like blues rock song i guess on the record and probably one uh, that he, d- you know, uh, the guitar is like really one of the big instruments in this, which in terms of like the bluesiness, a lot of the uh, ballad ones and some of the other ones, the guitar, I feel like is almost like a, is like a, a flavor, but it's not the whole thing. But this feels like a kind of more straightforward, like guitar based blues rock song, which is kind of different from him. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's definitely also, it, it's not, uh, it's not slick. Like bar band blues, it's definitely very broken down, and and you get that you get that sense. I mean, it's one of those songs that I feel like I I, I, I had to send this to you because I I really first of all I just wanted you to see it, but uh, <laughs> I thought it might be instru- uh, instructional in our conversation. It's uh, when Fred Armisen does a Tom Waits impression in the documentary Now series. I reach for my wallet and I found a note. <laughs> It said, I owe you seven cents. I promise I'll pay you on Monday. Meet me at the burnt down hair salon. Oh, wait, that place burnt down. There's certain moments on this album, <laughs> and this was one of them where it did seem like there were like lines from this song that would be indistinguishable from like if you were trying to do a parody of Tom Waits. Like, found yeah. an old dog and he seems to like me <laughs> like just there's certain things that just feel like so on the nose but at the same time i think partially because of all the juxtaposition between things like this really kind of comes sandwiched in between two like very sad slow ballads uh that i appreciated that part of it like i really i think like it's one of those things where if they if it was 12 songs that sounded like this like you know at a certain point it's like oh god but coming in where it does on the album and just uh and just yeah i just find like 
I don't know. I found myself just like loving this song, just like kind of laughing, but not at it, you know, <laughs> just like loving it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, yeah. it is, it is something. He is belting these fucking lyrics. It like just belting it. Like he's having a grand old time uh, singing this song. Um, there's a lot of. I mean, I can't say that there isn't a lot of heart on the song. It's. Uh, I think he's in his element. Um, he loves. We all know weights. Loves singing about hobos. He loves uh, that. Very Kerouac. Very Kerouac. Very weights. Uh, and this song's got cowbell. It's, it's, yeah, it's the one song that's got cowbell. And uh, yeah, going back to like this is like what a three quarter. Yeah, <laughs> it's just straight up blues, like you were saying, like pretty much just a three quarter. Um, yeah, maybe, I think so. Actually, he's got a bridge. He's got a bridge, I think too. The, no, yeah, Cold Water is very straightforward to me. I don't really have much more to say about it than. And that uh, I'm glad he's having a grand old time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, I'll let you. I'll let you depress us with the next introduction. Okay. <laughs> so our next track is uh, Baller Numero Two. Uh, this is Pony oh. by Tom Waits on Mule Variation <laughs> from 1999. <laughs> I've seen it all, boys. I've been all over, been everywhere in the whole wide world. I rode the high line. Oh man, pony. Um, I just I'm gonna throw I mean, something out there really quick. This is one of those songs that I. This is one of the ones that I barely remembered at all. Or if I did, really? Yeah, I know, which is strange. And uh, going back to it, I was like, "This is really great." I, I was surprised that this isn't one that like my dad wouldn't have picked up on. I know he at this point he had come back around after not liking some of the weirder ones he had, and he bought Mule Variations, and I he liked this album uh, a lot, but uh, mm-hmm. or, or at least a little bit, I guess. Maybe he didn't like it a lot, but <laughs> but Pony is one that just. Uh, yeah, it, it it really stuck out to me on the re-listen of like, this seems like one of the classic songs. Was this one that going in? You were big. You were big on. Um. Well, I can certainly tell you that I did not forget Pony. Um, right. I I couldn't have told you what I thought it was about. Um. I, I, well, oh no, that's a complete lie. I thought it was about a pony. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was about like a pet pony. Um. <laughs> That is, de- that is definitely what I thought this song was about. But uh, no, apparently it makes reference to, uh, among other things, uh, Waits' favorite aunt who uh, who died while this album was, was being recorded. Yeah. Um, and of course, once I read the lyrics, it made a lot more sense. I, I hope my pony uh, knows the way back home because I guess it implies that he doesn't. Um, very hobo-y again. It's a pretty heartbreaking baller. Um I don't know how much how much else I can expound on this song. It, it it has one of the most jarring lyrics, probably the reason I remembered the song, because it was was I run my race with burnt face Jake. I run my race with burnt face Jake. So you wrote about burnt which face Jake, a, or you put a link which to is, the thing. It's a line that made me cringe when I first heard it. <laughs> we I think we haven't talked uh, so far about. Um, this crucial, crucial part about Waze's aesthetic, which is that he loves imperfections. Like there's, there's strange, like little imperfections all across his music. Yeah. Um, and like his delivery of burnt face, Jake for me was 
uh, was one of those that really stuck out. And I'm like, I'm wondering, like, what the hell does this even mean? Like, like, are are you talking to Jake? <laughs> yeah, yeah um, right. but I. I, I came to figure out later that the burnt face Jake was a blues musician. Um, right. Who, who I'd never heard of before. So I, I stayed profoundly confused. <laughs> um, but uh, no, the, there's so much soul in this song. Uh, and and the, the chorus always stuck with me. I, I, I definitely didn't forget this song, despite the fact that it's not one of my favorites. And the ballers can be a, a little tough to crack, despite uh, one of the ballers being my favorite on this album right but um yeah yeah it's a it's, it's a good one it's a it's a good baller i'm glad it's here yeah what are, what are your impressions yeah no like i said it really stuck out on the re-listens to me because i just you know he he does have uh, so many songs that are these like beautiful ballady songs there's mm-hmm. there's a lot more of these than i can easily access in in my brain like just looking at a song title but you know, yeah. going back to it, like I really, I really liked it, and I wanted to mention the uh, this is Smokey Hormel playing guitar on this song, uh, who's like one of these guys who, if you don't know by name, but uh, he's like played with everybody. But like he's like uh, he was in the Blasters for a while, but then he's like done stuff with like david byrne and like he was on the beck album morning phase and he's just been on he's just a guy oh interesting he's just a guy who's just around like forever and he's worked with like just everybody is he a sessions guy yeah he's a sessions guy um but he's he's a blues guy but uh and then i think yeah he he kind of transitioned to like doing mostly like session stuff in the 90s and he's like worked with I mean, it's like one of those. You look up like the list. It's like he's worked with everybody from like fucking like Josh Groban to <laughs> Tom Waits to what, you know. So he's just like a guitar player for hire guy, but he's the guy doing that beautiful like slide part at the beginning, and that kind of yeah, that kind of makes really the song. makes it. Yeah. So um, you know, Waits is no dummy. He knows he knows to work with uh, he knows to work with some some really talented people. And I was also really I've always thought his name was funny because it sort of sounds like a type of pepperoni. Smoky Hormel, but then he is actually <laughs> yeah. related to the Hormel Foods guy. He's like his great grandson. Oh wow! So there you go. That's it, incredible. It's what people come to this podcast for: uh, Smoky Hormel yeah. related facts. So, <laughs> 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 but yeah, um, I liked it a lot. I, I was really happy to revisit it. I probably was like one of the ones that stuck out to me the most upon like re-listening to it. I think. Wonderful. Yeah, and uh, the only last note I can add to this game, uh, to this um, to this track is that uh, the I developed the mule, the mule variations drinking game upon listening yeah, to this track. I loved this. This is every you drink every time he he mentions a town. Yeah, and every time he mentions an animal, <laughs> <laughs> which we're gonna get uh, both of in our next track. If you think about it, Uh-oh. there's definitely oh man a couple of those. Our next track is the song of the summer. I know a lot of people have debated what the song of the summer is. 2022, this is it. It's um, we found it. I'm glad our podcast is covering it. <laughs> this is the this is the song of the summer. 2022. What's he building in there? What's he building in there? By Tom Waits on Mule Variations. What's he building in there? With that hook light on the stairs. What's he building in there? I'll tell you one thing, he's not building a playhouse for the children. What's he building in there? And what's that sound from underneath the door? He's pounding nails into a hardwood floor. 
I swear to God, I heard someone moaning low. Well, can I say, Beth, this is the perfect palate cleanser off of Pony. <laughs> um, oh my God. We're getting weird again. The bastards um, are back. I, I don't know. <laughs> what bastard this is. I don't know if Waits is capable of making what I would call a filler track, but uh, this is what I would call the ultimate Waits filler track. It is absolutely aesthetic, absolutely creepy. My God, I don't think I've ever heard a creepier Waits song. I don't know about you. Um, there are cer- certainly other creepy Waits songs, but um, like Nathan had been. But uh, oh my God, Earth died uh, screaming. The first time. <laughs> yeah. Um, for some reason, I when my partner told me that she had never heard who Tom Waits was, I felt compelled to show her the storyteller's footage of him performing this song. What's he, what's um, he I'm like, let me let me just give you the full package right now. Yeah. If you <laughs> this, can clear this, this hurdle, this... we can get to the nicer we can get to the nicer stuff. <laughs> she puts up with me. That is um, that's a bold but, uh, strategy. Like you really could have gone with like a downtown train or something that just kind of kind of eases you in. But that is, you know that is kind of false. That's kind of a false sense of like the scope of his career in a lot of ways right Cer- certainly i would say so that is a false yeah. scope of i th- i almost think that this is closer <laughs> right in a lot of ways it is yeah but uh the the incush- the percussion in here is insane um i love all the found sounds all of the percussion there's some turntable action happening too the, there's somebody credited on turntables on the on the liner notes which just imagining Tom Waits saw that. in a room with a turntable is very uh, is a strange image but he was like I guess embracing a little bit of that at the time apparently Kathleen Brennan his wife is uh, one of the ones responsible for the for this for the random sounds happening uh, in the background I love that yeah, yeah I love that <laughs> the um, turning to lyric to, to solely lyrics of course I'm listening to the lyrics on this song. Um, the, the, I noticed in this listen that the, the rhyme scheme is strangely Dr. Susie. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know what, I don't know what to call the, um, the, whatever the that meter or whatever, Yeah, whatever that is. It's almost childlike, which is, um, strange because, uh, serial killers tend to be, uh, tend to have uh, childlike minds. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the sole mentioning of formaldehyde in this song immediately turn turns my attention to oh this guy is killing people we assume so <laughs> um and i was i was very pleased to find on that interview you sent me uh with the people who worked on this project that uh that that jeffrey dahmer was apparently an inspiration yeah uh, apparently that was song. on his mind with the with this that that's what's going on with the hook light on the stairs and there's some details that I guess are from that. It's funny with this song because um, this might be an illustration of, uh, you know, <laughs> the fact that I'm somewhat mentally ill or something. But I've always found this song really hilarious uh, <laughs> because. Oh, it's absolutely funny. Because. It is absolutely hilarious. Because the. But prior to uh, prior to actually reading that the, that that Dahmer might have been an inspiration for this. I'd always kind of worked from the perception that this was Waits making fun of the narrator that, you know, that, you know, the guy who's like staring out his window, looking at his neighbors and he's going like, well, I yeah. can't believe he's the, look how creepy this guy is. And meanwhile, it's actually you who's like, his lawn is dying, you know, <laughs> like it's, there's something yeah. about it that just always makes me laugh. Like, especially when he says that line where it's something like, <laughs> I love the, uh, 
he he has no friends, but he gets a lot of mail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, my, as if those things follow from one another. I love it. And uh, yeah, you'll like you'll never believe what Mister Stitchell saw. You're like, well, why don't you just tell us? But you know, apparently, uh, yeah. <laughs> we don't get privy to that information. That interview I sent you to mentioned that. He had cut out he, that he recorded a bunch of other uh, verses that got yeah, cut out. Yeah, he had more verses. And I was like, oh, God, I want to know what those are. But on the, at the same time, I guess maybe they got cut out for a reason. Like maybe he really started to explain what he was building in there. And, that's, uh, that's a really good theory. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. maybe we don't have a right to know. Uh, <laughs> but there's no <laughs> other way. There's no other way you can end this song other than we have a right to know. But my, I think my personal um, favorite line is still going to be. Um, uh, <laughs> what he says uh, he has no f- he has no uh he has no fr- what is it he has no dog he has no friends <laughs> i don't know why that makes me laugh <laughs> like you either have to have one or the other like if you don't have any friends you have to get a dog at least <laughs> oh, mine him. was always uh he's certainly not making a play that one yeah children. <laughs> he's not making a playpen for the children <laughs> yeah yeah um that actually is probably the best that's probably the best one I'll tell you that. I'll tell say, you that much. <laughs> I just wanted to say, um, he int- when he introduces the song on Storytellers, he says exactly what you were just saying. It was, I think, he says something along the lines of, "This is the song. This is a song about about your weird neighbor or the neighbor that we all become." Yeah, I think is what he says. Oh man, I actually I should have rewatched that for this uh, for this podcast. Likewise, uh, yeah. But yeah, I think, in that, I, think in that I think you're right. Yeah, no, that's always been. I don't know. I've always found it to be really funny like that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. That's probably the best one. It's not a playpen for the children. I'll tell you that much. He took yeah. the tire swing up yeah. the old pepper tree. He has no children of his own, you see. That's the, what you're saying. Like the Dr. <laughs> Seuss rhyme that the. Very Yeah, that kind of like. Yeah. 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 Whatever poetic meter that happens to be. I don't know the names. This was this is one of my father's favorite Tom Waits songs. He would. He would put on Mule Variations and just skip to this track and then turn it off. <laughs> oh, that's a great way to not trauma to way to traumatize a child. Yeah, that's great. It really job, explains. Dad. It really explains a lot about uh, my personality. I think knowing that I was listening to What's He Building in there, probably a little, little too young. I was like, what, what is happening? Although I'm the slime why, from Frank Zappa, also did that. So you know, it was par for the course at that point. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, and I just want to say also uh, to to wrap up this this wonderful track uh, that uh, this this track really takes on a, a, an entirely new meaning in a pandemic. You know, like yeah, yeah, being trapped in your boxes and really being too close quarters with your neighbors. I I just came from an apartment where I know his neighbors above us. Like, what are you doing in there? Like, why yeah. are you constantly yelling? And why is there water? leaking into my bathroom <laughs> like what are you building up there wonderful track uh, classic weights uh i would say underrated and probably underappreciated i i don't think this this track gets the recognition it deserves despite it being uh barely musical yeah we have a right to know <laughs> yeah, certainly this should get the grammy nom i don't care what anyone says yeah this should have been best male rock vocal performance right here <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. Well, let's move on. Uh, this is uh, this next track is Black Market Baby. Cold stove and a bed, skillet and a hound. She drove a camel through a needle in this sinking boardwalk town. She's my black 
market, baby. She's my black market, baby. She's a diamond who wants to stay cold. Baby. She my baby. <laughs> <laughs> So we were talking about tracks that we forgot. This is the one that I forgot uh, was Black Market Baby. This is um, one of the ones I forgot, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I've I've come to re-appreciate it in a way now that I know, uh, for one, that he is saying she's a diamond who wants to stay cold yeah. instead of saying cold. Oh, oh, you thought um, it was cold. Yeah, that definitely changes it. Makes a lot more sense, especially with the uh, the mining sounds in the background, which really, really makes the atmosphere. It's great. It's so wastelandy. Just a nice little tweak off the weights aesthetic is like the wasteland, steampunky, uh, you know, diesel punk kind of aesthetic. Uh, I think Bone Machine really hits that home with its abrasiveness and its cover, yeah. specifically with those goggles that he's wearing. It's it's far from my favorite. But uh, I do love the way that this song plods along and uh, adds a, a good, decent amount of atmosphere. Yeah, I uh, I, I agree about it. It's one that I kind of forgot, but re-listening to it, I like it. I would say it's probably not... I like it okay, but it's probably a little bit... Yeah, it feels a little tacked on here. Like, I don't know if we want to talk about the idea of like whether or not we think this album has has too much on it <laughs> too many tracks i'm not I'm it's not, pretty long it's a little long or it's like because of the disjointed nature of like the juxtaposition between all of these things like it feels like sometimes i found myself kind of almost wanting to get to other stuff faster but this is good I, it's funny you said like the steampunk thing this feels like almost a little bit more of that kind of like I guess that that would be a way to describe it. It feels a little, yeah, like vaudevillian, like that kind of like that kind of. I I mean, it's like a very dark version of that, I guess. But this, like, there's something Mm -hmm. about, yeah, you you can see like I don't know, like dancers wearing weird makeup doing like a choreographed dance to this or something. Like it has this kind of like (laughs) almost theatrical vibe to it, which I can kind of. I kind of take or leave with him sometimes. Like I said, I almost feel like sometimes that that aesthetic. Um, while I understand it's like essential to Waits' career, can kind of be border a little bit on the caricature nature of him. And when I hear songs like Hold On or these things that feel more authentic, I, I feel like I gravitate to those more. And it's like, I think it's harder to like easily caricaturize those. So this is one that I can kind of take or leave, but it's when it's playing, I'm like, I like it. And I actually think that line, she's a diamond and wants to stay cool. I mean, that's a really pretty pretty brilliant uh line and and kind of ties it together for me enough but uh you know if this had ended up like on the cutting room floor i don't think i would be like super bummed out about it but i you know it's not like yeah, I hate it likewise right. yeah absolutely i feel very much the same um and i i mean i wanted to ask you before i express my opinion on it is do you like the the Shima baby, <laughs> like in the chorus do you like that because it feels very unweighty to me <laughs> to be on here um i guess i liked it i was wondering if it, it do is it actually him doing it 
or is it somebody? I doubt it. Okay, I highly doubt it. It seems like it's somebody else, but then I didn't. I didn't figure out who that was. I don't mind it so much. It, it it's again. I guess maybe that's what I'm. I'm thinking with like the. I'm just picturing like people wearing like vaudeville costumes at like a crowded stage, and somebody in the background is just like brave. It like I don't know. It seems very <laughs> of that kind of aesthetic to me, and and part of that. Uh, but that that part doesn't specifically bother me just as sort of as much as like this just one this one feels you use the word plotting there um in an, in a positive way but yeah this definitely maybe at, at certain points i was like itching to itching to keep going um so yeah, yeah. press that skip button there yeah, yeah. and uh, and skip it we shall yeah, i I, <laughs> I hate that she, i hate that she my baby i hate it <laughs> i had a feeling you would um absolutely one of the best parts of this podcast is gonna be i've already like looked picked out some albums i want to do and i'm like listening to a couple tracks and i'm like there's i know that there's elements of this he's gonna he's gonna hate so much and i'm really looking forward (laughs) (laughs) yeah you just can't wait to hear me shit all over it yeah yeah it's gonna be great it's gonna be gonna get there Let's move on to what Let's I would f- consider is this. I teased it before, but this actually is the song of the summer, folks. If you if you have a pool party and you got your boys out there and you got some beers open and you're at the swimming pool, it's like throw this bad boy on right here. It's the song of the summer. <laughs> throw down a couple of quid. <laughs> throw down a couple of quid and invite the eyeball kid to your pool party. Here's eyeball kid. Your name will be lights. There's no doubt, but you can got to have a man to do this, what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people would point, people would stare. I always be to protect you and to cut down on the glare. I know you can't speak, I know you can't sign. So cry right here on the dotted line. God, what a song. This thing, I... It stuck out in my mind for a long time as the most erratic track on here. I think erratic's the only word. It, probably because of his vocal intonation. I, I wrote down, like, what even, what accent is this? What do you do? Are you a circus barker? Or are you, like, an auctioneer? Like, what are you, are you selling a circus freak? Because that's the impression I get. Yeah, it's, uh... <laughs> It's like the type of circus that that only exists in Tom Waits' mind. Like, I mean, obviously there were freak shows and stuff, but yeah. <laughs> do you do you have anything else to say about it? <laughs> I mean, it's really. I mean, it's really like when I mentioned the Fred Armisen thing. Like, this is the kind of thing that I think. Like, somehow this combination of like hobo with carnival barker slash like yeah oh like God. this weird vaudevillian energy somehow like kind of has taken over his whole persona i think publicly like and and you know even the roles like he takes as an actor are sort of spiritually connected to this right this kind of like yeah i'm thinking of like did you ever watch that like it's like the dr parnassus movie Imagine Man, that. a lot. I was, I was just thinking about. I forgot he was in that movie. I saw it a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, me too. I think I saw it whenever it came out. But you know, that kind of like <laughs> he's sort of playing. That's exactly what he is, right? Yeah, like, that's like exactly a, what he's, he's doing. It's in like the a, movie. it's like some kind of co- it's like some kind of combination of like the if the devil ran a freak show, like that's like <laughs> part of his like uh, persona. Like he he's kind of Satan, but he's also sort of like involved in show business. I mean, this song is like about show business, and I know you 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 mentioned that in the yeah. little notes thing that he like had a comment about that. 
you know, it's uh, this is the first time going through this album I had ever considered the the fact that potentially waits with with a song like this. I, I'm not saying that he actually thinks this or not, but I could understand the idea of almost writing a song kind of playing into that persona right and just being like oh this is who you actually think i am so i can write a song about like here i'm a guy like telling you to go see a freak show Uh, that was kind of Mm -hmm. what i got out of it but there's something that like yeah the the caricature nature of it put me off of it at first a little bit but like as time went on i just again it was like kind of like the cold water thing where i was like i can't help but laugh even though I actually am technically enjoying this song. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> yeah. it's just like this is so ridiculous. But at least as long as I understand it's, it's ridiculous, I can get behind it. <laughs> it is four levels of ridiculous. Like uh, even the instrumentation is ridiculous. It's it's eight. It's largely atonal, I think. Um, but his lyrics sound like they're in major, and so in my brain i'm like oh man you can just like rip these vocals out and make like a ridiculously happy mashup or something from from this song yeah <laughs> but uh <laughs> um speaking of the instrumentation though the marimbas are back the, the right the, uh the signature weights marimbas uh make an appearance in this song i think they're the only time that they show up on this album he can't <laughs> it's, it's eyeball kid and how do you what like do you want, right like who do you like who comes up with i mean the answer is him i guess <laughs> and 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 kathleen maybe to some extent but like just the idea of a of a kid that only has an eyeball for a head and then it's like yeah i think we can run with that i think i texted you that uh there's a mention of the eyeball kid on uh she's a scream the song the third track on uh, bone machine so i was like wait is this like an extended universe thing but then we both found the same yeah. we both found the same information that like Nicholas Cage got him reintroduced to comic books and like the eyeball <laughs> kid is something that comes up so then I was like what well, did yeah. so did that come up before bone machine and then he like expanded on the eyeball kid idea or like how did this how did this work but um if there's a conversation Nick Cage and Waits are talking to one another yeah like, if there's a the conversation fuck? I want to hear it's like t- Nick Cage and Tom Waits just like talking about comic books like that's something that happened in uh, in a, in America so <laughs> Or maybe it wasn't uh, in America I, bef- for all I know. I don't know. <laughs> Before we leave this bonkers track, uh, I, d- I do want to say that it has one of the most clunky lines on the album for me, and I love it. It's he's not conventionally attractive. He's not conventionally attractive. <laughs> he's not conventionally handsome. <laughs> Which is definitely not something I've ever heard sung before yeah. in my life. Um, um, the line that stuck out to me so much when he said he can't. You know he can't blink. You know he can't sign. So cry right here on the dotted line. I was like, "What kind of sick oh, mind man. comes up with that?" And the answer is, "What a line." Thomas Allen Waits. That's the answer to that question. That's the kind of <laughs> and a great one. Yeah, I do, I don't know how um, I don't know how you come up with something like this, but I am certainly glad that it exists in the world. <laughs> yeah, I, I I was definitely repulsed by this song the first time I heard it. It it took some growing. I can appreciate it now. I'm glad it's here. And there's no way that he did not floor. and there's no way that he did not want people to be repulsed by this song. Like that's pretty seems like that's the mission statement here. <laughs> yeah, certainly. This next one is a uh is baller numero three, right? It's our third yes. sad, slow baller track, and this is the song Picture in a Frame by Tom Waits on Mule Variations. The sun come up, it was blue and gold. 
In a um, frame. I, I want to correct you on one thing. I do not register this song as sad. <laughs> it may be a ball. It is still yeah. a baller, most certainly. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, that's a good point. It's not. It's not actually. Uh, it's not an. It's not a sad song. That. That's a good point. No, most certainly not. Is 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 a love song. It's a. It's a very cute, very very cute love song. I. I honestly don't have much written about picture in a frame, other than the fact that it is absolutely adorably sweet. It seems like it's very clearly an homage to Kathleen uh, and his love for her. The song structure is very simple. The lyrics are very repetitive and simple. It's wonderful. I don't know. Picture in a frame is just wonderful. It is, yeah. And going back to the hold on point, the fact that this is something he can just totally do, especially coming off a track like Eyeball Kid, you know. Holy. Is, (laughs) you know, that, that to me really hammers home this idea in my mind that I feel like he has to have had some kind of realization about the idea of, of understanding that these were completely separate modes, but he was able to work in them, you know? And I think that, I think that's sometimes like hard for artists to, to do. I think sometimes if you are somebody who could write a, um, a song that's as weird as eyeball kid you almost feel like you have to write a whole album that like complements the weirdness of that and the fact that it mm-hmm. seems like he has this compartmentalization of his songs where he's like there's no difference to me between writing like an insane carnival barker song about a kid with only like an eye for a head and just writing a beautiful love song about my wife and putting them on the same right. album right next to each other like i feel yeah. like that has to be i have to believe tom waits is like smart and perceptive enough to understand that that's unusual and just go, yeah, that's fine. That's who I want to be. I want to be somebody who writes songs and I want to write about whatever I want to write about. And so this is what it's going to be. It's not like it's in a vacuum either. I mean, like Waits is privileged to do this because like he started off his career with songs like this and then he made songs like Eyeball Kid later on in his career. And now he's finally, finally at the point where he can be like, you know what? Both. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say like on small change, You've got like pasties in a G string, which is like super weird in the middle of like that album is is almost entirely ballers um, in in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And then there's like there's step right up and there's pasties in a G string, which just seem like they kind of are almost like to break up the mood. But again, it's like the mood is the mood and then you can break it up. Whereas this album, while being great is kind of not a mood. It's it's all different things. It's it's, it's like each track is its own little universe and own little mood. Yeah. At least to me, at least the way I hear it, if somebody were to say that this puts them in a certain mood, I you know, potentially, but to me it's like very juxtaposed. But yeah, it's funny you say mm-hmm. it's not a sad song. I mean, it isn't a sad, like lyrically, it's definitely not, but there is something melancholic about it that I pick up on. And I guess maybe that's just my own projection <laughs> potentially but the idea of putting somebody's picture in a frame and then that kind of like solidifying your your ideas about them there's something about that that it that makes me it it makes me you know it, it, it's it's kind of like yeah it's it's not it's not sad in a this person broke up with me and i'm crying about it could it was just that sort of melancholic nature of like life moving on and 
and this is the yeah, like I'm a I'm a capture this picture of you here because of the way it makes me feel now. Yeah, um, right. Because God knows if it'll change. Like, yeah, right. And and pictures in a frame don't change. So even if things happen, you still have it there. So there's something about that. Um, but yeah, no, it's as to, in terms of the uh, sadder ones or the uh, slower ones, I should say on this album, this is probably like the happiest one in some ways. So. Um, but oh well, actually, that might be up for debate. We'll never know. Um, do you want to move on to the next track? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've been I've been raring to get to uh to this next track here. This is Chocolate Jesus, the Immaculate Confection. Fall down on my knees every Sunday at the Red Leaves Candy Store. Well, I've got to be Chocolate Jesus. Make me feel good inside Got to be a chocolate Jesus Keep me satisfied Well, I don't want no apple Man, what a weird... You know, we, we were talking about, like, when I got into weights and all that stuff. Um, but, like, being a classic, like... You know, kid on the internet in 2008, 2009, I saw Waze's name on Radio Music or something like that. I probably went to YouTube and typed his name in. And the first clip that always comes up, I think even to this day, when you type in Waze's name on YouTube, is the clip of him doing Chocolate Jesus on Letterman. Letterman. And it was my, that was my first exposure to this man, like was watching him do that song. And I still prefer that version of this song uh, to the album. Um, that video of him doing Chocolate Jesus on Letterman, despite the, the shitty quality by today's standards, is like, it's the com- it's the complete package. You get to see him be, like, you know, play a character on stage through his music. He does that, like, really cool, uh, I don't want to call it a dance, <laughs> but that really cool strut across the stage he has the glitter he has the hat yep. he has that his percussionist has that fucking big ring thing that's in front of his kit yeah. that he hits every <laughs> once in a while and whenever he hits it like dust or sand comes off of it <laughs> yeah and um and then you have um the banjo player who like really ties it together in that live version killer banjo solo in the middle of chocolate jesus and of course, you've got Tom Waits uh, delivering lyrics through a megaphone, uh, very signature of him. But at the time, as a first exposure, I was like, whoa, whoa, what? You could do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, Chocolate Jesus blew me away. I-, I can't tell you that I loved that song the second I heard it, um, or Waits the second I was exposed to him. But like, yeah, I would I would do it again. That's That's a a perfect first impression to this man. Maybe I should have done that for my partner instead of showing her uh, uh, he the storyteller version of what's he building in there. Uh, but uh, yeah, wait, meal variations, great for first impressions. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy because I remember when you and I lived together, this would have been after that period, but we definitely watched that video many times. I think at this point you were mm-hmm. already pretty well well into the, the weights, weights world a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's funny. You, so the Letterman thing is also what I think about with this song in a lot of ways. And um, this the studio version is different. Like you're saying, you prefer the other one. It's this one is so mu- it's it is a lot more intimate in some ways. 
and it feels a yeah, lot. it's it's less forceful. Yeah, and I feel and it's and that one is so like theatrical and kind of yeah bombastic in certain ways that this one is not. This feels like a you know when you hear the studio track, it's a lot more sort of kind of drawn back. Um, it mentioned in the recording thing I sent you that they that he recorded this song outside. He recorded the vocal <laughs> yeah. song outside. Were you saying about the uh, you wrote something in the note here about the the rooster sound? Because then I read something that said he thought it was a, that it was an actual rooster that's happening in the background. But then there's other things that say that there were people making noises in the background or that there were yeah. Yeah, I thought I had read in the interview that that people were making animal noises, so I extrapolated that to mean that someone was doing that rooster. But that said, that sounds like a really realistic rooster. <laughs> like whoever does that, whether it be Kathleen or somebody else, like props if that's a fake rooster. I, I love the animal sounds; they really tie it together <laughs> in a strange way. And so, who was it who said one of the people working on the album said that they didn't they didn't know he was doing this, and they like drove up to the studio, and he was outside, and they're like, "I guess my car is going to be on the album now." <laughs> Like, and he was like, "Keep it, yeah, keep it, keep, keep it, in. it in, yeah." Um, so that does add like a, a quality to this that I hadn't picked up on, like listening to this track before. But yeah, it's another example of a song that isn't super complex in terms of its sort of. Um, I don't go to church on Sunday. Don't get on my knees to pray. Like, there's sort of a a lot of these tracks have this kind of straightforward like blues logic to their lyrics, but musically mm-hmm. are completely different. Like, are this kind of broken down folk music like this is, or just like insane shit <laughs> like the sound of Eyeball Kid, or like kind of aggressive sounding ones like like Cold Water, or one we're gonna hit in a couple of tracks. Um, and it's so crazy to me that there's like this. Uh, he has this ability to to write more or less straightforwardly. I mean, even picture in a frame is like a lot of like kind of repick like re you know, repeated lines and sort of, mm-hmm. you know, there's not like I there's not that many lyrics to that song and and uh and even though there's there's more lyrics to some of these, they follow this logic that's very sort of straightforward. You could say nursery rhyme, but also almost more like I think I hear more of all like a sort of straightforward like blues component to um like the meter of uh-huh. his rhyming but the music is so totally like different and and you know alternatively either eerie or scary or aggressive that you don't pick up on like even with going back to big in japan that kind of rhyme scheme of like i i got the i got the you know i got the butter not the bread i got the you know like this kind of yeah. almost like mad libs level thing where you can filter <laughs> yeah. in but at the same time like pairing it with this really well produced and really um intoxicatingly strange music on each track <laughs> and alternating between all of these things just makes it seem like so alive to me in a way that you know if somebody played chocolate jesus as a straightforward like acoustic blues thing it just would be so much less appealing somehow you know right well th- i mean that's there's so much character in it too like the, the yeah. letterman performance is really better to me because uh it gets so much more of the preacher vibe about it like he's he's playing so much more of a a proselytizer like on a platform right right yeah he's got he's got his hands going and all that stuff like you kind of don't get that with the more subdued version in studio or outside of studio but um but no like i I think there's like you were saying like anybody trying to do this song who's not him in a straight blues format won't won't capture that that you need the character you need the the acting presence that weights can deliver right. to make it work. 
Right, and and weirdly, you get that on stuff like What's He Building and Eyeball Kid more so than you get it here, um, even though this is the one that he did on on the Letterman show, so that's kind of interesting. But yeah, I mean, it also makes sense that you wouldn't want to do What's He Building in there on national TV, so I understand why that decision <laughs> might have gotten made. But yeah, I mean... Hey, I'd, st- I'd stay up for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's great, and this is definitely one of the ones, um, along with like Get Behind the Mule, that I kind of like offhandedly like associate this album with a little bit, I would say. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, classic, classic track, Chocolate Jesus. And then we um, head to uh, Baller number four. Baller number and four, this one really man. Ends. Yeah, it's this is a sad song. Yeah. And this yes. is the uh, this is the song Georgia Lee. Cold was the night, and hard was the ground. They found her in a small grove of trees. It's, uh, uh, that that chorus, yes. that chorus gets stuck in my head. Especially like just recently, having like listened to this a bunch in a row, I was just mm-hmm. finding it weaving in and out of songs, even in my head. Like just going back to that, why wasn't God watching that thing? Just yeah, um, I can't even call this song melodramatic. It's it's pretty on message, right? Um, I, I always thought before I looked the lyrics up uh, that this was a song about an old woman. Because uh, I associate uh, the name Georgia with old ladies, but um, no, yeah, like it was, it was about a, a murdered twelve-year-old girl um, whose body was found in nineteen ninety-seven, a year before the the album was released. Or a year and, before um, they recorded. It did come out in ninety-nine, but yeah, it's a year oh, before they yeah, correct, yeah, yeah, yep, absolutely, yeah, a year before they recorded. And uh, again, like. I guess taking a, a, a page out of the uh, House Where Nobody Lives book, he's he's writing about something that's around him, something that struck him on such a human level. And uh, I mean, if you're taking a subject as grim as this um, and incorporating it into your album full of, you know, erratic songs and, uh, and mixed in with ballers, uh, man, that's brave. I, I, I can't believe he did it and, and executed it so well. Because um, yeah. Georgia Lee is a is is the strangest earworm I can think of, uh, as you were just saying, like listening yeah. to this album recently. There isn't a song on this album that got stuck in my head more than Georgia Lee, and I can't explain why that is. Yeah, I mean it's, uh, um, it's just it's just devastating. The, um, I think the Billboard article that I sent you mentioned that he went that Tom actually went to the the funeral i don't know if this was like a public event or something but it mm-hmm. uh that and so yeah obviously this was an event that really um that shook him up a lot and uh and this is just like a a 
beautiful but devastating uh, song that's kind of, um, yeah, a ripped from the headlines event, which is like not something, again, you would associate so much with weights, like living in kind of a fictional carny hobo world, like the fact that he is so, um, yeah, a- along with, like you, like, uh, like you said, the house where nobody lives, where I find it just very humanizing and, 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 uh, and, and beautiful, his, his, like, actual compassion for this, for, for what he, what he's singing about here, and, and I think that really tracks well with this song, and also, you know, I mean, and this was another one that really struck me a lot with the re-listens, because I didn't know the whole story behind it, and, and really what he was talking about, so this was one that kind of was very illuminating for me, that he had written this, like, really tender, tender song mm-hmm. you know so uh yeah it's beautiful and, and, and very sad and, and i'm realizing it too as we we're talking about it that, that like this human element uh that he delivers here with with georgia lee and, and house nobody lives like this really like like you said humanizing aspect of weights is kind of new for him on this album like i can't really think of examples from the past that really uh dig down uh, yeah, yeah. To the ground level, like like these songs do for weights. I like guess... it's not about it's not about him. It's not about his aesthetic. Uh-huh. It's not about the eyeball kid. It's 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 like right. Yeah, you know, it's him writing about the world around it's him. Not, it's uh, not about enough formaldehyde to choke a horse. It's about something else. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. It's about it's about like it's something he's experiencing that's affecting him in this life, uh, which I, I, I'm not, I hadn't really realized before that this is really new for him on this album. Yeah. I guess you uh, could say something like that's an, in, it's important though, when you said it's not about him. Cause I think that there are songs that when I hear them, it's impossible for me to not think that that had like even something like downtown train that, you know, whether what whatever level of fiction that is in terms of if, he felt that way about somebody or whatever there has to be i get the sense of that he's when when you listen to a lot of the earlier weight stuff i I get the sense that it's um you know like a lot of songwriters there's things that happened to him and things relationships that he had but then he was expounding on them in like this imaginative way of like and this is how i imagine this conversation with this person i never met would have gone kind of thing as opposed Mm -hmm. to literally writing about a tragedy just straight almost straightforwardly as possible yeah you know? and it's uh i'm also rem- reminding myself like this is kind of bob dylan-y it's it's yeah. topical song ish uh death of hattie carroll you know story uh, of the hurricane and that kind of stuff like the, yeah, yeah yeah it's it's got a twinge of that to it either way i mean you know hats off this is this is a an incredible track for for so many reasons and i didn't even write that much about it you know it, it really speaks for itself um yeah uh, instrumentally speaking, I like how stripped down it is. It, it deserves to be stripped down. Um, I love how you can hear the click of the keyboard or the organ that he's playing. Just, it's I don't know. It's very organic. It's very uh, it's very of the earth. It's it's a good track. It's it's a track I'm not inclined to tell people I love, but I mean like it's a standout on this album. It's it's most certainly a standout. Yeah, every time it started, I was like, am I emotionally ready for this? But then about halfway through, you, you settle in, you know, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then it ends. And then uh, this happens. <laughs> this next thing. Happens. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Gonna, let me let me throw to it. I, I mentioned it earlier. But again, if uh, if you don't think the song of the summer is what's he building or the eyeball kid, this is for sure your go to. Uh, this is the <laughs> one. All the all the cool kids 
all the zoomers are into this next track. It's uh, <laughs> there. This is going to be the next TikTok big hit. It's uh, our next track is the song "Filipino Box Spring Hog" by Tom Waits on Mule Variations. All bill bones, I gave him a yell. Keyholes back and all, with a chain link fence and a scrap iron jaw, cooking up a Filipino box spring hog. Cooking up a Filipino box spring hog. Cooking up a Filipino box spring hog. Dan, what do you think of uh, Filipino box you know, hog? <laughs> let me start with the positive because there aren't many of them. I, I can't help but, we were just mentioning Bob Dylan, I can't help but th- think that this song reminds me of a leopard skin pillbox hat, just like the way that the title, the way that the yeah. title just like is yep. so janky. Uh, and they this have is the word, my least and they favorite both, track. And they both have the word box in them, so I guess there's something. They do. They do. This is by far my least favorite song on this album. I really wish it's not. I really wish it weren't here, especially following Georgia Lee. I cannot think of a more inappropriate way to break the mood. Uh, I, I, I frankly can't believe they did this. Um, dear Lord, I feel like they could have. They could have shoved this onto Blood Money. Um, this could have gone on a B-sides collection. Anything anything uh this song was too abrasive for me it makes me cringe when he says the word recovery room the lyrics make no goddamn sense i got what did i write down rattlesnake piccata with, with grapes, grapes and figs, figs. like <laughs> yummy yummy no thanks tommy boy i i will pass i will pass on filipino box spring hog every time i will i will press skip <laughs> yeah, I'm I don't cur- know what do you think. I'm curious about so when you re-listen to the album, did you do did you do like several full re-listens and then like just cherry pick from there, uh, or did you force yourself to like listen to it five times and you were like, you know what, no, I'm not doing it anymore. Feel no, I, I did two full two full listens, uh, days apart. Because <laughs> uh, I'm gonna push back on you a little bit in terms of the placement. I don't really see this as like, I again, I don't. Like it almost at this point in the album feels logical to me to after Georgia Lee to put like the weirdest or not even I don't even know if it is the weirdest but the definitely the most abrasive <laughs> song on the album and uh, I I don't know uh, I, I just gotta say I uh, I kind of like it it reminds me a lot oh, man. it kind of <laughs> reminds me a lot probably it's because it reminds me a lot of. The stuff that's either on like ba- uh, brawlers or bastards of the orphan set, where you just go like, "What a bastard this is!" Let me tell you. Yeah, and where, where did it like where, where did this come from? Um, yeah, this is another one that sets off the the, the Fred Armisen uh, alert of like if he had said like, "What's the line about one of the hobos showing up to the?" Because it's like hobos roasting a pig 
over a box spring in a rail yard. That's what's going on in this song. And so <laughs> they're like, one of the hobos shows up on like a one-eyed mare. That's like that line, yep. whatever it is, is just like again. If he had said that in that in that uh, in that documentary now thing, it totally would have like not been a. It would have seemed hilarious, but it's actually a <laughs> Tom Waits lyric. But I don't know. Oh, I like I like I, I I like it, man. I got to admit, I like the I like the abrasiveness. I like the the guitar stuff on it, and I just like find it really funny in some ways that we talked about with Georgia Lee and some of these that he's going against type and in some ways and like you know really touching that human side of him and then he's like but also I write songs about hobos cooking pigs in boxes like that's part of my thing <laughs> back to hobo land yeah, here we go yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> lest you forget like that's you're listening to a Tom Waits album I don't mind it um I also I this fact really uh I thought it was super funny that Kathleen Brennan is in the song. There's a Kathleen character in the song, and she's the one wearing the bra with the weather. Kathleen was sitting down in little red recovery row in a criminal underwear bra. And Oh, shit. Okay. And there's a quote from Kathleen, like, yeah, I finally made it in a song, and I'm like a homeless woman wearing just a bra. And like... <laughs> That's real confidence in your marriage is that you have, you're like, hey, honey, I have yeah. this album and it's got five beautiful love ballads, but I'm thinking I'm going to stick you in with the uh, hobo uh, pig fire song. Yeah. Are you cool with that? <laughs> like he's really. That's love. That's love, that's love right, right there. there. Yeah. So, uh, so good for him. I'm uh, <laughs> I, Lo I, Love I, is not picture in a frame. It's, it's putting your wife in as a hobo. It's putting yeah. your wife in as a hobo. <laughs> but yeah, the fact that he, I never noticed that he name checks Kathleen and it's, and then she said, "Like, yeah, yeah, I finally made a song, uh, you know." Um, but uh, <laughs> I'm honored. <laughs> it's some kind of <laughs> Faustian bargain to make it into a Tom Waits song, and this is what you have to deal with. Yeah, great looking stuff. at this, looking at this track list, I, if I had to put this, uh, if the song had to stay on the album, yeah, I, I agree, it has to be in the second half. Um, I would probably put it between Picture and a Frame and Chocolate Jesus, just. But then again, Georgia Lee, followed by this next track, would be a lot of heavy, That'd sad lot. Um, energy uh, for the for the latter end of the album. Um, but, you know, sequencing's a bitch. What are you going to do? <laughs> um, and again, I don't know. The sequencing thing to me at this point feels like they've already kind of ditched that in some ways to me. Like it, that didn't that part of it didn't bother me or like didn't send me as much as if it had been a situation where there was like, again, like if they hey, if he had put the four ballads in a row, except the, like in the middle, just put this in. I'd be like, what the hell is this doing here? But it feels like it's just... It feels like we're on like the track listing here does is a little bit of like up on shuffle of of Waits's like ideas to me. Certainly, yeah. But you're a huge oh. fan of the next track, I know. So, I am. I am. Um, this this next track is a uh, baller number five, uh, last baller on the album. Uh, my favorite song. Uh, this is "Take It With Me." Oh, long since gone. Now way back when. We lived in Coney Island Ain't no good thing ever dies I'm gonna take it with me when I go Far, far away Wherever you're going, wherever you've been. 
I didn't really truly appreciate this song until I heard someone else cover it. Uh, I know that happens sometimes. Uh, a woman named Rachel Price covered it on uh, Live From Here with Chris... Uh, Chris Thiele. Thiel? Thiel? Thiele, yeah. Chris, really? Thiele? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which was previously Prairie Home Companion. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, I was surprised to see that uh, pop up on my YouTube recommended one day. I checked it out because I knew I knew the song and I was like, oh, yeah, man. Tom Waits cover and uh, her version of it was gorgeous, uh, which which really got me to critically look back at, uh, at Waits's version, <laughs> Waits's version, Waits's song. And uh, it's gorgeous. It's 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 melancholic for sure. And it almost kind of almost has like a Broadway feel to it for me. I don't know why. Yeah. Like the like the sad scene in a Broadway or the sort of melancholic scene at some point in a Broadway where somebody like turn you know, something has happened. Yeah, I could see it. They turn to the audience and just belt this out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I strangely love it when really, really good songs find themselves like second to last on an album. Like you've waited so long on this album to get to a song uh, of this quality. I don't know. Lyrically, it's complex um, compared to some of the other ballers. It's not repetitive. That refrain of I'm going to take it with me wherever uh, when I go. Uh, you don't know where he's going. You don't know if he's leaving a relationship. You don't know, but like, uh, there's something he has to to, to keep with him. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I just love how it it scrapes the bottom of his range of his gravelly ass range. Yeah. <laughs> um, makes the song a great hangover song for when your voice is absolutely fried, and uh, you just need a a comfort song the next day. Absolutely bittersweet to its core. I love the song. Great. Yeah, that's a really good point about the range because I um he actually does have more of a range than he gets credit for. I think he can hit higher stuff than you think, but yeah, this is like very low in that. Yeah, it, this is interesting for you. I mean, um, because you sent me these, uh, you sent me some notes a, a couple of days ago about this, uh, or was that yesterday? Jeez, I don't even remember. It's been so long. <laughs> um, no, but uh, <laughs> you sent me some of these notes that you had, and and you mentioned that this is like one of your favorites on the album. I like it, although I would say it doesn't. It's not one that stands out to me above the other, uh, the other ballers on that on the record. Like I think I like them all kind of more or less equally um and this isn't one that stood out to me so much in a different way but i do like it and it seems kind of like yeah it it has this sort of i, I agree with you it feels this um especially with the closing track this feels like the one you have to kind of put as the penultimate one i think it's a good slot for that but uh yeah mm-hmm. i i like this song i think i'm guessing getting the sense you like it a little bit more than i do but I'm, as I said, I love these songs where he's kind of playing against the stereotype of him in some ways, even though this is like a pretty critically acclaimed album that has five of these songs. So it's, you know, it's not like there's a, a dearth of slow, beautiful Tom Waits ballads. It's that for some reason, the kind of louder uh, elements of his persona, I think, can kind of drown some of this stuff out. But uh, I mean, I'm glad to hear that this is like one of your favorite uh, Wait songs. I think it's very good. I just, uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah. It's possible that you know, this will be one in like five years that I'll text you and be like, "No, you're right. This is like the best one." <laughs> it's a it's a slow grower. It really is a slow grower. It 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 definitely didn't hit me the the first you know 
few listens of this album. Gotcha. Um, it took it took a matter of years for it to come back to me and really really hit me. Yeah, and I, and 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 that might be part of it because I think prior to getting ready for this, I hadn't s- sort of specifically spent a ton of time with just this album over and over again. So I think, you know, sometimes if you're listening to an album, just kind of surveying it. It might be by the time you get to the fifth really slow song, <laughs> there might be a tendency to kind of to kind of uh, slide through it a little bit. But at this point, I uh, but re-listening to all of these, I realized how each one of them um, is great on its own merits. But I still, I, I guess, I don't have, you know, I guess I don't in my mind. It doesn't seem that different from like the other four. But I like them all. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I like them all equally, but not like different differentiating between them between them. I guess sure. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, and then we're and then we're at the final track. Yeah, final track. Uh, it's 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 been a it's been a long haul, but uh, this is this has come on up. Oh, you're crying, don't do no good. Come on up to the house. Come down. This is a great album closer, and I I really liked this one. And uh, I know you wrote in the notes here like about any of the religious undertones. I'm not a hundred percent positive what what's going on with that <laughs> in this song. I don't know what <laughs> could be a little tough to tell. It's I'm not a hundred percent sure what we're trying to what he's trying to to communicate with this song. But with that said, it it feels spiritually like you kind of have to close it with this, and it feels like yeah, it's very sort of. Like uh, you wrote uh, triumphant in your notes, and I think that's a good that's a good descriptor. So I like it a lot, and it feels like this is kind of how you have to close it. It's somewhere between a baller. <laughs> it's not right. It's not. It's 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 not a baller, but it has sort of um, there is some kind of emotional component to it that I feel like you could you could only kind of place like after you've heard this entire record, you know. Um, so yeah, I think he knows he's put us through a lot. Yeah. Right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> And it's like here's something you can kind of go out on. Feel like you've kind of uh, uh yeah you've gone through a journey here, and this is like your little. <laughs> this is like I'm gonna give and you this co- at the now end. Now you can come home. Yes, right. Yeah, like you can come home now. Yeah, it's like it's, come on up to the house to me. I always just picture like a house sitting on top of a hill. Yeah, like you know, like a shack. You know, like a like a like a drinking shack or something. Right. Um, There's gonna be like a warm blanket and some drinks for you when you get to the house. <laughs> just come on up. Yeah. Like you've made it. Kind come on of up, thing. you. You fucking hobo. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's like, um, it reminds me a lot of Anywhere I Lay My Head, uh, the closer of Rain Dogs. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is in, uh, I think, a harder song to listen to than this. Yeah, right. he, he loves to just, he loves to just fucking sometimes just go all out on those closers. And uh, this this is definitely one of those. Even the harmonica solo uh, is is completely all out. Uh, there's like, I don't know if it's a blatant <laughs> mess up in the in the harmonica solo where he, what sounds like flubs a, a note 
inside of his harmonica solo, but it's clearly one of those just keep it in kind of moments. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, I feel like anybody else would have done another take. <laughs> you were the, yeah, you, um, you were the one who pointed out the harmonica solo being kind of like a little cringy to you. I, I, yeah, it, it seemed, it seemed to sort of like, this is, uh, yeah, it, it seemed very weighty to me to just leave in like the kind of warts and all version yeah. of stuff. Like yeah. he seems to have this, like he uses, you know, like banjos and harmonicas in his music, but he seems completely disinterested in like people who are like really good at playing those instruments. And I don't mean like the people he uses are bad, but like, you know, the idea of like that, ki- like, same with the banjo where it's like there's people who just play it incredibly well and it's sort of like he's like no i just need to kind of like to make this song have some kind of atmosphere to it <laughs> like it just has to have a banjo in yeah it, it just has to have it <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, but no yeah religious undertones aside uh whether or not they are valid or not um i i do love the uh, get off the cross we could use the wood yeah line i think that's awesome it's great <laughs> it's a really cool turn of phrase um whether or not it's cliche or not i can't i don't actually know but uh no yeah i i just love the uh people think of waste as a uh like you know a barfly like drinking alone um being a hobo or something but like this song is all about like hey let's come together and and it's a wonderful song it's a great closer good way to wrap up uh quite a quite the journey of an album jesus yeah yeah, this was a do- yeah, this was a, a doozy of an album to kind of start our podcast on, but in a way, it's good. It's kind of like a baptism by fire. We didn't do like a, we didn't do like a six song one or something, you know, <laughs> going all out. Mm-hmm. I mean, overall, oh. to me, I yeah, it's re 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 listening to this and and assessing each song kind of on its own merits and stuff. Um, this definitely moved up the ranks for me in Tom Waits albums, and I. I already felt like I held it in pretty high esteem, but you know, anytime you go back and intentionally sort of try to, even in the most superficial way, analyze an album or decisions or uh, song specifically, I think you can get more out of it. And going through this just made me, the, the, my main takeaway was that it seems like Waits on this album, I want to say it's potential a little bit before he kind of figured it out. But on this album, I think he really hammered home the concept that I can do all of these things. I can write, I can write tender love ballads. I can write really weird ass, like circus (laughs) grimy songs. I can write kind of almost like just straightforward, like broken down blues songs or like I can write a rip from the headlines, like sad ballad. And mm-hmm. it feels like in some ways going forward in his career, if, if I had a, a criticism of him after this, it's like, I wonder if that part of that, that realization has totally colored all of his uh, artistic decisions. I'm thinking about bad as me, that album, bad as me. Mm-hmm. And while I, I I like the music on that album and stuff, I just it it does feel like he is in some ways as much of the character of Tom Waits as he is as a musician now, and that also has like love ballads and stuff on it. But this feels like this perfect balance in some ways between he was still able to be the Tom Waits that is the public persona, but also be the Tom Waits that originally wanted to you know, write a song and have it fly away and give daddy some money, kind of like that He's he has this ability <laughs> to be a tender singer-songwriter while also 
being a weird ass guy <laughs> who has like a lot of strange yeah. ideas in his head and a whole persona that he's like partially protecting. And I think, I wonder if this is kind of the pinnacle of that. And so if people are overlooking it um, or glossing over this period now, it might be because we see him as this now, if that makes sense, like this kind of solidified mm-hmm. a version of him that he's like still maintaining to this day, even though he doesn't put out nearly as much music He's still acting and all of that a lot, but um, so yeah, I don't know. I that that was my main takeaway was that not only do I like the album a lot, um, whether or not we want to talk about whether it's uh, appreciated, underappreciated, or overlooked, I I think if there's something that's overlooked, it might be that he is not the carnival barker eyeball kid guy all the time. He can do all of these other things, and I think uh, it's definitely worth people's time and attention to devote yourself to actually listening to an album of his and seeing the things that he's capable of that aren't just, like, the most theatrical parts of his of his whole career, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I think versatility here is the, is the key word. Um, I, I don't think a single weights album demonstrates it better than Mule Variations does. Um you know, like I, I you know, like you, you kind of said it all. You know, he's he. You've got all of your brawlers, bastards, uh, and, uh, <laughs> brawlers, ballers, and bastards. Bought and bought and especially ballers um, on this album. Uh, you know, waits at this point in his life, fifty years old, really pick and chose um, his strengths and, and put them all together on on mule variations. Th- that all said, I. I you know, that's not to say that Rain Dogs, to draw a comparison to uh, the album that I think a lot of people would consider as Pinnacle, um, Rain Dogs also has ballers on it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, really, they, uh, really, they it, all kind of do in some ways, but yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, I, I don't mean to say that he's never accomplished this before, but um, when it comes to mixing and matching uh, his styles and, and really honing them, yeah. Uh, even if we're talking about Filipino box spring hog, <laughs> um, like yeah, like he was a he was seasoned at this point. He really, really had it down, and he put it all together. And I, I think Mule Variation Mule Variations really, really hits it. The, the man's versatility at this point in his career, uh, and and also you just never really had um, musicians who've been around this long creating albums this good. It's pretty rare. I, I saw I saw comparisons to Leonard Cohen. Um, you know, right? Uh, stuff I, don't like that. Dylan, I don't think Bob Dylan's made a good album since 1975, but that's another story. That's another podcast like, at some point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can't do a lot on the tracks because that's oh man, that's that's way too highly regarded. Uh, <laughs> anyways, but uh, no, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mule Variations is wonderful. Do you think that part of the appreciation for this, like critically and stuff, I think, or, or do you think part of that maybe came from the? very obvious juxtapositions that he's going for here because I almost feel like critically if there was something that rubbed critics the wrong way for a while with weights it might have been that they felt like he was kind there was kind of a putting on airs about about him like we mentioned that there was something that I think certain people who don't respond to it kind of looked at him as this sort of like that he he was almost more of an actor than a musician in some ways. Or yeah, like kind of like there was a lacking of authenticity or something like that. And the like, fact that he's very willing here to go from Georgia Lee to Filipino Brock Spring Hog to me almost <laughs> solidifies <laughs> the idea that he he was kind of aware of that in some senses and was. I mean, again, I don't know the degree to which he was because. 
Bone Machine feels like he's trying to get to this and he's not quite there, I would say. But kind of, yeah. Bone Machine to me always struck me, despite having only listened to it a couple of times, as uh, it's the logical next step after uh, uh, Rain Dogs. You know, it's it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this knob up even higher, and it, as a result, it is far more abrasive than than most of anything that had come before it. Whereas this whereas this ditches it. Well, even when he's trying to, even when he's trying to do things that are more tender on that, they don't they don't play as well because I don't think he's quite at the level where he's able to acknowledge the fact that there's this huge like chasm between certain types of songs that he can write because really like there aren't that many artists that can write songs that are this disparate. Obviously, there's artists that can like change styles over time but like that's a different thing where like this album is this and then the next one has the but the idea of him being like well i can do you know the love ballad type stuff that i was better at in the 70s next to my weirdest shit and it it's all me like you're coming to listen to me and you like my aesthetic and that's all of those things and i think that's like i have to imagine that was kind of a hard thing to to comprehend but then i wonder if that's why this album got like you know this came in like not that this really matters, but it came in fifth on the Paz and Ja poll for 1999. So it was like highly rated for critics back when that poll mattered a little mm-hmm. bit more. But so, you know, I, I think I almost, in terms of this being underappreciated, I wonder because I think part of the critical appreciation was this, um, was based around this bias that he was kind of like a fake you know, pretending to be like a fake hobo or whatever and realizing like, oh no, this is a guy who's just really, really, really good at writing songs and he can just kind of write whatever he wants, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I want to speak really quick to the criticism aspect of it too, which is this came out in 1999. Um, One of the things I was reading mentioned the the confluence time that like, this is when Napster came out. Right. This is like music criticism... You know, we can talk about, like, what it means to earn a Grammy in the 90s um, right, versus right. what it means to earn a Grammys in the late 2000s. And, like, you know, I would say that, like, Rolling Stone polls and, like, rolling, like, like your Rolling Stone ratings and your Grammy awards and your music criticism props only had so much of a lifespan at that point in 1999, I think. Music was, was about to democratize. And... Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a weird time for this album to come out, considering all those things, which to me plays into um, why this would be considered unappreciated now. At the time, it very, very mu- might have been appreciated by the major players that you almost had to listen to because the Internet was still uh, quite nascent. But now, <laughs> now, like... You and I, I mean, uh, mostly me. I mean, you had the benefit of listening to Waits your whole life because of your your awesome dad. But um, <laughs> like me coming to Waits in two thousand eight, um, because of I saw his name on a website, and then deciding to like torrent his entire like discography or something. Right, yeah. Like like that's a whole different story. Um, when it comes to how the music gets exposed to you and what you're going to consider great, depending on what people are saying about it. The operating word there being people, not critics, because I wasn't looking at what critics said. I couldn't have told you right. which one of Waze's albums had, had critical praise and which ones didn't. I could have only told you uh, which ones 
the people talked about the most. Thankfully, Mule Variations was among them. Uh, although it, it may not have been, like I said at the beginning, at the beginning uh, it may not have been the first mentioned or even the second or third mentioned. Yeah, and I think that yeah, you're 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 right to point that we're kind of at the nexus of two points in 1999. For a guy like Tom Waits at this point, who was a you know a veteran in music to say the least for so long, that this was the this may have been sort of a uh, also kind of a quote unquote makeup call from some music publications who maybe had been dismissing him for a long time or whatever, and so something that they could wrap their arms around like this maybe plays into the fact that like you know a Robert Criscow or something like can get behind it mm-hmm. but it's funny also with Waits because one thing that I that his career is so indicative of is that he you know <laughs> he he's not aging like he hasn't aged the same way a lot of other artists do because he's not a guy who was ever perceived as being like young <laughs> in some ways you know even his earlier <laughs> yeah. records were are coming from this perspective that seems like this kind of world-weary worldview. <laughs> and that's interesting considering the fact that, you know, obviously he was young <laughs> or young-ish in the 70s <laughs> when he was releasing that stuff, but he was already kind of retro. You know, he was already pulling yeah. from these these old, you know, the he was, you know, obviously a big Sinatra acolyte and all of this stuff. It wasn't like the stereotypical, like, you know, young star who then has to kind of age in public it already felt like based on his voice and his whole aesthetic that he was already like i don't think in the public sphere like tom Waits seems that much older now than he did in 1999 (laughs) you know what i mean even though obviously he's much older but uh you know he's in his 70s now but it's like you know if he comes out with an album and i think you saw this with bad as me like that got a lot of good uh critical attention as well when it came out and it's kind of one of those things where it's just like you know he was never he was never a young guy, even though he was, <laughs> you know, in terms of. Right. And so I think that something like Mule Variations, um, when, especially when you go back to it, it's funny to think that it is at this point, whatever it is, 23 years old, because a lot of these songs sound like he could have written them now. Or, you know, obviously you have like Georgia Lee and stuff like that, but it doesn't feel that that much older now than it was when it came no, out even yeah. though it's 23 years older which is just partially yeah, that's just yeah. the way the culture works but it's also like you know tom waits is just he's tom waits he's he's that guy like he's not it, you you can't it's hard to picture him as like a like a teenager you know what i mean like it doesn't seem like he of ever course. had that part of his life even though he quite obviously did you know <laughs> yeah yeah timelessness definitely uh plays into my experience of this album i i, I think it had a lot to do with the uh, the reason why I liked it, and I think he's um, aware of that. I I feel like that's something he has to be aware of. That he, I think he was smart to uh, like, you know, um, there's some regrettable uh, uh, cover art for like you know big time and stuff. There's some bad decisions, but for the most part, he never like, you know, he didn't do like an eighty in the eighties. He didn't do like the bad synth pop album or like you know what I mean. He didn't. He never totally le- like he was always him, and I think that over time that's always going to benefit you as an artist if you if you're not relying on just like the trends or critics to kind of carry you he's just who he is and so i think once he right, kind of right. fully rounded into this shape of knowing yeah i write these kind of baller brawler bastard songs and i can just do this it just made his career yeah. more and more credible even if when you go back to periods where you know he was maybe a little bit more 
confused or like stuff yeah. like heart attack and vine where he's like in the blues band and stuff like i i dig that but it definitely that stuff doesn't age as well as like some of his other material but like you know it's still it's still him fundamentally and i think that that's like one of the biggest strengths of tom waits like whole musical career um at the at the the, the risk of belaboring this point even further uh, before we wrap up this this whole conversation has me thinking a lot about james taylor who i grew up listening to because of my parents right. and um, you know, James Taylor, let's say, had a, uh, let's call it like a six-year head start on Waits. I can't remember when Closing Time came out. And um, when I was young, um, James Taylor's album Hourglass came out. My parents bought it immediately. And it came out in 97. And, like, thinking about, okay, so we got both of these musicians from the 70s who really, like, hit their stride in the 70s. Thinking about Waits, it's like you said, that guy who who kind of was always an old man who almost didn't have to age in public, whereas James Taylor totally did. And then you think about how, how much they each respectively transformed their sound, whereas James Taylor kind of fell more in line with pop music, I would say, um, almost became a full-on yacht rocker, if you will, but kind of but dodged that bullet just narrowly. Yeah. Um, and whereas Waits instead you know, got together with Kathleen and completely flipped his style upside down. Um, right, right. And so then, and then you fast forward to 19, to the mid nineties <laughs> <laughs> where they both had these late career efforts. Hourglass is dear God, James Taylor's 14th album. Wow. And, uh, he, he got a Grammy. He also got a Grammy. Yeah. Um, it's like if you just stick around long uh, enough, you can, <laughs> He also got a Grammy in 1998, uh, ironically, for Best Pop Album, which is hilarious. Wow. Huge commercial success at the time. And uh, it, for what it's worth, is a good album, which we won't cover, but it's a good album. <laughs> and, um, we could. I, if um, you want to do it, I'll do it, man. I don't care. <laughs> nah, nah. I don't, we're, we're good. Um, but... Uh, if you're if you're trying to compare, you know, if we're trying to compare Hourglass to to Mule Variations, that there's literally no comparison. Uh, like Mule Variations stands the test of time. Um, it's it's like we said, it's the, it's the culmination of the man's career at that point, uh, perfectly assembled. It could have been part part of me thinks the Mule Variations could have been Hourglass. It could have been like a more muted version of of who he is right um and it would have fallen into the background despite getting a grammy like you would just dismiss it as oh it's it's not one of his stronger efforts it's just kind of him coloring by numbers but no like the meal variations isn't that for some reason it is an extra level of effort um on top of weights doing exactly what he does best whereas hourglass kind of is a little bit more of james taylor painting by numbers um, yeah, I mean, I actually don't know the album you're talking about, to be honest, but I, I could mm -hmm. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's also going through these tracks like it, it would really wouldn't have been that hard for him to have put out an album that was pretty much all the baller tracks. You know what I mean? And just sort of going, well, I, like making that as a career decision, because James Taylor is an interesting person to bring up, because I think. 
you know, in terms of fan bases, <laughs> I'm not sure what the overlap is between Tom Waits and James Taylor, but I would be willing <laughs> to bet that if you asked Tom Waits about people he respected, like in terms of singer-songwriters, I wouldn't be surprised if James Taylor was on that list, you know? And mm-hmm. I think, uh, and like Waits spent time around like the like the Laurel Canyon and stuff. I mean, or whatever. That yeah. Is. So it's not like he was a million miles away from that, you know? It just feels... Um, and I think you you hit the nail on the head with the with the Kathleen Brennan thing because I think her involvement in his life and his career benefited him and also made him it made him somehow simultaneously like more um, elusive to understand but also more accessible publicly. Like I know that she was like instrumental in the idea of him doing like more touring and doing the sto- uh, the storyteller stuff. So. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this 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 back and forth between the two of them um, that I think really like uh, yeah really expanded on his career in a way that I see what you're saying that had weights like it really would have been a direction he could have gone in if he had just worn you know the if if he hadn't gone for the chocolate Jesus on Letterman route when he was just like sitting at a piano <laughs> playing picture in a frame or something and just like letting that be his whole career yeah. it seems like there was a real conscious decision between him. And Brennan to to not do that and to kind of maintain the aesthetic that he had. And also, you know, I mean, it is worth noting, I guess, I suppose that <laughs> Tom Waits's vocals are way more abrasive than James Taylor. So there's only so much James oh Taylor God, can yeah. do, you know, to right. Like James Taylor, if he wrote the eyeball kid, it just doesn't play. <laughs> Even if he wrote the song, <laughs> there's no way he would be able to pull it off in, in the same way, I would say. Uh, so, you know, that there's, there's aesthetic differences between just the sound of the music that, that, that dictates this as well. But I agree with you going back to this. That was a great takeaway that I think this really, um, whether or not you want to say this kind of plateaued his career, I think there's an argument to be made there that maybe, since then he hasn't reached any new heights but this is like the height that he reached of the logical conclusion of like i am tom waits as a songwriter who can do all these things and be tom waits as a performer at the same yeah. time and uh, his yeah. voice has gotten even crazier in stranger <laughs> if you've ever listened yeah. to that glitter and doom live album there's songs that sound like it's like like a meat grinder singing a song it's like insane to listen to <laughs> but uh but you know i i'm a huge i'm a huge uh admirer of the man and his work and I uh, uh, and I was really yeah. pleased to talk to you about meal variations. I'm 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 looking forward yeah. to uh, getting to uh, albums that I know even less. You know. <laughs> yeah. Likewise, Kev. It's been wonderful. Um. And I, I too I stand in awe of this man. Uh. It's 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 gonna be a. I'm glad to have shared Earth with him, and I'm, it's going to be a bad day when he passes. Our next That's album it. is going to be Honestly Nevermind by Drake. Um. We just want to have our. Uh... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there was no way I couldn't have gone. <laughs> it's going to um, be well, The Right well, Said Fred uh, second record, uh, underappreciated. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know if they oh made two Lord. records. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> they probably didn't. <laughs> Actually, weren't, wasn't Right Said well, Fred, they were like a real punk band before they made that song. <laughs> That's like the case of like every band from that era, apparently. Yeah, they were like um, an actual punk band, and then they had a radio hit, and then it was over. Well, dear listener, we appreciate you coming on the journey with us if you have thus <laughs> far. And um, please join us again uh, for, for our next album. See you next time. Bye.